6.30, shall we? 10.30. <laughs> Everyone set? <laughs> All right, welcome to the Wednesday, August 23rd meeting of the Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Commission. Glad for you all to be here tonight. Um, I have a couple of uh, housekeeping items uh, to handle first. Drew, would you talk us through the how we handle hybrid meetings, please? Yes. My name is Drew Bilby, planner, and I will be helping to facilitate the Zoom video portion of the meeting. We will work alongside the chair to facilitate the meeting proceedings. I have a few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. Uh, this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat to me. The city reserves the right to mute or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I will turn the meeting back over to Chair Rex Road. Thanks, Drew. First item up is uh, last month's meeting minutes. Um, and I'd uh, accept a motion to receive and approve. So moved. Thanks, Steve. Second, uh, Commissioner Ashworth. Any discussion? I have one little typo. Yeah. Um, in the action, um, there should be, in the first action, there should be an F to allow for the reduced alley, not to allow or the reduced alley. Just a typo. Okay. How do we uh, bring that information into the, the meetings? It can just be a motion to approve with that amendment. All right. Any objection to that motion? So we need, a, we need another motion, right? We need to rescind the first motion and then apply a second, second motion. All right. You rescind the second. <laughs> you rescind the motion. Uh, make a new motion uh, um, to accept with the amendment as stated by. So moved. Second. Second. All right. Very good. Any discussion? Thank you for that. Um, no discussion. All in favor say aye. Show a uh, sign by raising your hand, please. Aye. Any opposed? Were you aye? I missed you. I was abstaining. I wasn't That's here. That's right. I wasn't no, here. I should last. have asked for an abstention. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah. Thank you. All right. And moving on to reports from committees. Uh, we have three on the list tonight. Uh, the uh, Lawrence Douglas County Metropolitan Planning Organization Policy Board. Charlie and David Carter are, are, are members of that. Uh, Charlie, is there any update that you want to share from that group? No. All right. No update there. Um, uh, Land Development Code update. Um, steering Committee. Um, a uh, quick update on that, uh, the, uh, what we're calling the meeting in a box, which is a, uh, a way to facilitate uh, feedback from the community. That is out. I think I have a note here that there were 30 responses on that. So that program appears to have some uptake. Um, module 1, this is an important one. Module 1, not that the other one wasn't, but Module 1 is still out for public feedback. Strongly, strongly encourage anyone interested in land development code, and that's going to touch everybody. Um, go through Module 1 if you have any feedback. Um, this is a great time to provide that. And there are some profoundly paradigm changing things in that module. I want to encourage you to take a look there. Um, next item, any questions on LDC? Is there yes, a date that the, all the feedback has to be submitted? I'm sure there is. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Do you happen to know what it is? 
I do not. Maybe I could ask staff to look at that while I'm while I'm uh, giving a quick update on wind. We'll come back around for it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> on wind, um, major milestone um, this month. Uh, we've uh, packaged up draft two, what we call draft two. Um, it's after 18 months of, of uh, work and a little over nine months of public uh, meetings and feedback and input. And this is now off through an, the beginning the official process of reviews. And there's a number of different entities inside of county government um, that are going through a review on this. Public feedback, public inputs, I should say, into this have been paused. We uh, call a code lock, or we, we, we stabilize the, this version of the regulations as they are, so it can go through those reviews. We'll publish a note a little bit later on after the ad hoc team has had a chance to meet on what the public uh, review Q&A sessions are going to look like, what the timeline is for that and where they are. That hasn't been uh, formally decided yet, but that'll be coming out pretty quick. Um, we're still looking at, actually, I'm not going to do it. I said I wouldn't. I'm not going to say any dates or timelines. I've been wrong on every single thing I've said. Um, but we are advancing through this methodically. We don't want to rush, even though we know we need to ultimately get done. So, Any questions there? Any, any additions from... Charlie, Mike, or Prashanth? I, I just want to re reiterate what you said, Gary. We've met um, with a lot of different stakeholders and uh, taken a lot of feedback. So I just want to reiterate that. For sure. For sure. Thank you. Anything else? All right. Dates on LDC? Meeting in a box is due back on September 15th. Module 1 is still out, and those are still online. You can submit them on the... Uh, Fancy PDF, I don't know how better to describe it, where you can add comments and suggestions and put questions in there. That is ongoing, and that will keep going for quite a while. So, Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question. Um, unless there's anything else, we'll move on. Um, to uh, item one on communications, receive written communications from the public. All communications were included as part of your packet this evening. Thank you. Receive written communications from staff, planning commissioners, or other commissioners. None this evening. Receive written action of any waiver request determinations made by the city engineer. Also none this evening. It's an opportunity for any of the commissioners to declare any ex parte communications that they may have had on items that are before us tonight. None? All right. An opportunity for declaration of an abstention from any commissioner on specific agenda items tonight. No abstentions? All right. And we move to general public comment. This, this particular portion of general public comment is designed for items that are not on tonight's agenda. So anything not in the formal business tonight, an opportunity to come up to the mic, up to the podium. Um, I ask you to give your name. You have three minutes to discuss whatever might be on your mind. Is there anyone here tonight to provide feedback? How about online, Drew? Do you see anyone? I do not. All right, thank you. With that, I'll close general public comment and we'll jump into the regular agenda. Item number one is to consider making a finding that the projects presented in the 2024-2028 Capital Improvement Plan, also sometimes called the CIP, are in conformance with the city's comprehensive plan. And should we find that forward to the city commission for approval? Uh, Brandon Thorngate, I believe. You, Brandon. Hey, Brandon, welcome. And I think you're going to present on this tonight. I am. Don't. 
think the Zoom meeting is up here. How do I share the presentation on the screen? <laughs> Thank you to me. Oh, no, Kurt's got oh, it. Oh, Kurt's got it. Yeah. Put that link there, would you? I think it's popping the block up up here. Nice. I'll let you do it again. Oh, was it up here? It's always one of these computers. <laughs> okay, that's you. All right. Thank you. I think I'm sharing the wrong thing. I'm so sorry. This is going well, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's like I've never worked Zoom before. There's always something then. There we go. Okay. Thank you for your patience. Um, I'm here to discuss the 2024-2028 capital improvement plan with you. I have a very short presentation. Uh, we'll get right to it. The reason I'm here tonight is there's a state statute, KSA uh, 12748, weird formatting. Um, but this statute um, creates the link between public improvements and adopted land use plans. Uh, it basically uh, requires that a capital improvement plan come to the Planning Commission to ensure that all of the projects included within it are in conformance with the community's comprehensive plan. Um, so the Commission's role here is to review the multi-year plan, determine if the proposed projects are consistent with the goals and policies in Plan 2040. Uh, the benefits of a CIP are that it helps us um, determine overall development pattern perspective, get a long-range view um, on the projects that are going to come up in the community over the next five years. It promotes coordination uh, between de city departments and other agencies um, by allowing us to plan out on this longer timeline. And it allows us to effectively budget operating costs and spread those out over a number of years and be aware of that as we go into the budget creation cycle. These are some of the key elements um, within Plan 2040 that uh, apply to the projects within the CIP. Um, environment and natural resources, housing and neighborhoods, transportation, economic development, community resources. And um, I'll, I'll touch briefly before I get to the staff recommendation. The city's CIP process um, is that there is a CIP committee comprised of city staff who reviews all CIP projects, ranks them on a number of criteria, and then um, that is what is used to develop the CIP. One of those criteria is reviewing it against existing long-range plans, including the comprehensive plan. And there are, I think, three planners that I know of that are on uh, that committee that are doing that review to make sure it 
can all the projects conform with long-range plans in addition to other subjects that are of interest to them in their particular roles. So therefore, staff's recommendation is that you do make a finding that the projects presented in the CIP are in conformance with Plan 2040 and forward that recommendation to the City Commission for approval. And that's the presentation. Very good. Um, we're going to open the floor for public comment at this point. Is there anyone here from the public that wishes to speak on this item tonight? None? Quite a bit different from last year. All right, with that, uh, there's uh, no applicant. Um, I guess we'll bring that back to the commission. Um, Jeff, if I could um, ask you to, to click in on two items. One, um, our scope in this, uh, what we're meant to do and, and maybe what we're meant not to do. Um, and then I'd, I'd also love it if you would talk a little bit on how your organization, how your staff worked with city um, in the development of this to assure alignment with Plan 2040. Well, the, the role of the Planning Commission, this is to look for the conformance. It's basically just looking for agreement that is, <clears throat> excuse me, what is in the CIP is generally conforming to the long-range plans. So Transportation 2050, Plan 2040, and those items there. It is not the Commission's role to worry about funding or the timing of the CIP or those details involved in that one. That's a policy decision for the governing body to look at. But just generally do these items meet the long-range vision and intent that you have there. And, and Brandon hit on on this a little bit and I'll, I'll go in a little deeper on that as part of the reviewing process I've, I'm not on the CIP committee but I'm part of the committee that helps go through the budget and do the details of it but specifically looking through the CIP Becky Pepper is a part of that she's looking at it from the planning aspects from the land development code but also plan 2040 Amy Miller the assistant director for planning is also a part of that process and looking throughout this for those long-range vision and items uh, Jessica Mortinger who's our transportation planning manager is also involved in looking at these in detail on that one and quite truthfully there's a lot of staff from MSO that would probably take me about two hours to name everybody who is also going through all these things and not just looking at them from the project specificity but looking at them in course of, of you know what do we have in those plans what is the details that's coming in online on those so it's really a multi-department look as we're going through those to make sure it conforms so it's not just always falling on the planning commission or on the planning staff it's really a very large team effort that helps us ensure that those go through there I hope I covered both of your questions on that, I hope. Very well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, to the commission, any discussions, questions? Yes, commissioner. So, so from looking at uh, the plan, it seems that affordable housing was one of the main areas of emphasis. Is there any way, and I don't know if this is an appropriate question to ask here, but is there any way to quantify how serious of a problem that is for our county? Like, you know, since we're spending a lot of energy, can 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 we just can you speak to that, or maybe Brad can? It, it's not quite connected to this, but my answer will be is that there's a lot of effort going on right now through the housing and homelessness strategic plan that is underway, and they're trying to put some large, uh, high-level numbers to it uh, that are pretty substantial on that one. You will see some programs in the CIP that are related to affordable housing that the the governing body has asked for and included as part of that that part, but. It's, it's very hard to get a, a round number to attach to that because it, it is always fluid and fluctuating and forever changing. There's no, there's just, it, is, it is the example of a question that will forever evolve. And so we're always working on that number, but don't really have a good one for you. Thank you. Thank you. Other comments, questions? 
I'll just make a, a just a brief comment. Of, um, of course, I, I do think that the CIP is in conformance with Plan 2040. Um, but just uh, to put in a plug, um, when I look through the projects that um, are listed there, um, there is a big chunk um, for road maintenance that I notice, and it's a um, a big chunk there. But it's not very. It can't be detailed out. We have big projects that have um, big price tags that are next to it, and then there's this lump of just regular road maintenance. Um, and as somebody who bikes and walks around town, I spend a lot of time looking down at roads. And so I would just like to put a plug in for the governing bodies to take a look at th maybe once not spending so much effort on the big projects and taking care of some of our residential um, roads because that does speak to strong welcoming neighborhoods and it speaks to um, environmental sustainability and it speaks to the health and wellness of the community um, to have uh, roads and sidewalks that are bikeable and walkable. Okay, Commissioner. Other comments, questions? Everyone, yes, yes ma'am. Um, I have a, a substantial comment, and that is that when I went, few, went, few, went through all of the CIP projects, I think they all, except the affordable housing ones, conform with Plan 2040 and um, follow the um, statute that we're to follow, that 12748. And the reason is that 12748 um, deals with the construction of a public facility or utility in conformance with the comprehensive plan. The roads, the big projects, the sidewalks, the utility extensions, all of those clearly fit because they're part of the public facility. They're part of their deal with construction that will be funded as appropriately through the CIP. The affordable housing, there are two, I think, um, things that I looked at, and they are AH001 and AH002. And those have to do with um, housing, and housing that is based on creating a neighborhood that is limited by income. Nowhere else in Lawrence do we use that. And in Plan 2040, we talk about neighborhoods and housing that are limited in terms of density. And when we talk about density, we're talking about how much acreage in a lot, uh, setbacks for housing, um, structures that have to include access to them and have to include um, utilities. But that's not what we're doing yet with affordable housing. I think that afford the affordable housing work that's gone on is astronomical and it's absolutely terrific. Um, and I really applaud the people who have been working on that. But PSA 12748 also says that once the Planning Commission has re reviewed a capital improvement program and found that a public improvement um, conforms with um, Plan 2040, no further review is necessary by the Planning Commission. This is troublesome because, number one, I don't know that affordable housing is a public improvement. 
it is, in, in our city, it seems to be a partnership between a private entity that's a nonprofit and the governmental entity. So it, I don't think it is a public entity. But if we were to approve these two affordable housing things, it would appear that the argument would be that there's no need for any further involvement with, by the Planning Commission in looking at any particular project. And that is somewhat consistent with the fact sheet on the Holcomb Park, in that that fact sheet said that neighbors and others would be in, engaged at the time of a site plan. That's very far down the planning process. And I think it's too far down the planning process to be able to say, at this point, we can say that our, our um, capital improvement projects for affordable housing do conform with, with Plan 2040. And I would be more than happy to add, uh, answer any questions you have about that. But in reading the materials, the materials that have gone to the city, there clearly have been, it's an evolving project. It's a project that uh, no one has yet been a, in a position to really define very much. It started out as a project that would be geared towards people employed by the school district. And then it, it morphed into um, people who had certain incomes. And I think if we are creating neighborhoods based on income, we're creating a ghetto. And I think it is most satisfactory when the wonderful work that tenants to homeowners have done with new affordable housing in existing neighborhoods. And that's created a mix that has been um, beneficial to the individual new uh, residents and to the existing neighborhoods. But I think we're way ahead of ourselves on this. So I, at that point, I would like to make a motion to approve all of the CIP projects as conforming with uh, 20, plan 2040 and excluding, for the reasons I have just stated, the approval of the affordable housing projects. All right, motion made. Yeah. Um, I will need to walk through what our options are on this. Um, I, I believe, I'll, I'll go to Jeff for that here in just a moment. I want to ask a question though, that as you walk that through, I found myself hearing elements of the text amendment conversation that we have at the, on our last item tonight. Um, are those are those things are, are those things being conflated there, or um, is this this stands on its own? No, this stands on its own. Okay. If they're conflated, it's unintentional. Okay. Do you agree that they might they're, that they're similar? There's some relationship, absolutely, particularly as it deals with the comprehensive plan. And, and what are our zoning districts and how are they made up? But I think that's a separate conversation. And as I understand it, it's based on the statute that says, that 12748, that says if by any chance the Planning Commission uh, has reviewed it and finds that a specific public improvement um, does not uh, conform, then 
we need to write a reason as to why that is and send it to the governing body. And the governing body can overrule that. And that doesn't have any effect on funding. Gotcha. It's a completely separate item. And I think the fact that it is only a planning item, you know, that it is uniquely a planning item, not mm -hmm. just only a planning item, but that it has no effect on them. Gotcha. Point, of, yes. point of order, I believe there needs to be a second before we go into discussion on the motion. So I wasn't going to go to a, a Well, discussion. there's a pending motion. She's made a motion, and that's right. pending. And I wanted to get some clarification before we go to a second, if that's okay. I, you would need Robert's a, rules, I don't, I don't. You would need a second to continue the discussion because the motion was floored, put to the floor before the questions. All right, fair enough. Sorry. Yep. I second it so we can go on right. with this hey, discussion. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yes. I want to be proper. So, Jeff. Um, if I remember right from last year's conversations, there's uh, a path that if we have a concern about an item that's a part of the CIP that we must take, we can't approve a part of it and send it back. Can you talk us through what the options are should the, the Planning Commission decide that some component is not in compliance? Sure. The state statute says if a planning commission finds that such proposed public improvement facility <coughs> excuse me, or utility does not conform to the plan, the commission shall submit in writing to the governing body the manner in which such proposed improvement facility or utility does not conform. So that would be a part of the thing there. Two things to note on, on that line there. The city is at its discretion available to say what goes into a CIP based upon what it is. And Allie will stop me when I run this off the tracks here. But I believe it's at items that are priced at over $100,000 or multiple years. So that is how certain things make it into the CIP. They, they meet that threshold for the costing value there. The thing to also note is that while it does say in state statute that it wouldn't come back to the Planning Commission, that is germane to the CIP. That does not excuse a project from coming back before you for platting or other approvals as part of that process. So anything that would be ultimately given by the Affordable Housing Advisory Board through that funding would still be subject to going through all the entitlement procedures and processes in the code. So it wouldn't automatically bypass any of those items as part of that. So now the project that is in there in my in the CIP for this one is not specific to any property as of yet. It is only being given to the Affordable Housing Advisory Board to then go through the process to allocate it and disperse it as they would like. So it is not dedicated to a project or a parcel at this time to my knowledge. Thank you, Jeff. Did you have any additional thoughts? I, I do. Please. Um, and I looked at the recommended capital improvement plan for AH100001. And the description of it is, at their March 14, 2022 meeting, the Affordable Hous Housing Advisory Board moved to recommend that the City of Lawrence set aside 500000 in capital improvement funds to be used exclusively in support of affordable housing projects to be presented to the city by the AHAB no later than December 1, 2022. The address and cost estimates provided in this request are for the acquisition and infrastructure of an 8.78 parcel contiguous to Holcomb Park on the northwest corner of the park along Lawrence Avenue. I think that's a fairly specific uh, yeah. location. My apologies, I was looking at the wrong one. Oh, and then the other one um, 
I, I won't go on and read the rest of it, but I, I don't think that is the kind of public facility that the, is included in the rest of the capital improvement project. The roads, the things to be constructed that make hard surfaces and uh, that sort of thing. And then the second um, item I looked at was the AH1002, and that, ha that has to do with um, the move to recommend the City of Lawrence set aside 500000 in capital improvement exclusively in support of affordable housing projects. Now, I think that everything else in the CIP plan are things that are owned, supervised, controlled by the City of Lawrence. In this case, what the second project is, is money that is being granted to another institution or another nonprofit. I'm not quite sure what the word institution means. I guess we'll talk about that tonight as well. But um, I don't believe that that is what would be considered construction of a public facility. So. Depending on the project, it may be that those funds are used for hard infrastructure such as roads, sewers, connections, and those kind of things. There, it could also be for the acquisition of land, which is what we do in CIP typically, is if the city needs to acquire something, we can do it as part of that. And I don't know if the AHAB has gotten to a point where they have specified that, but that could be something they look at as part of it. So it could be used for that in, as an ultimate intent. And I think that would be appropriate in the CIP when we're ready to do that. But the conformance with the comprehensive plan, I think, is our item tonight. And I, I think that the kind of housing that is discussed in our comprehensive plan is not income-based housing. If not the CIP, where would a line item for that kind of expenditure be appropriate, I wonder? Well, I think it would, I think Mr. Crick would know far better than yeah. I. It would be the CIP because anything that requires the city commission to authorize over $100,000 or work in that kind of over multiple years would be in the capital improvement plan because of the way that the budgeting process works. So <coughs> it is in the right spot as, as part of that housing there, or excuse me, as part of the overall project there. Okay. We have a $470 million budget with lots of operational money in it too, and I don't know why it wouldn't be appropriate in an operation. I don't know where we give grants to <coughs> nonprofit uh, agencies. Where, where do we give our grants to other nonprofit groups? Allie might need to bail me out here a little bit, but my understanding is it's things like the Affordable Housing Trust Fund and that, those are dedicated sales taxes and they go in and do their own process there. That is the same with special alcohol tax funds um, and other things like that. Otherwise, the city commission would be able to go through general fund for certain projects, but even then there's a threshold at which if it goes into the general fund, it has to be in the CIP to be budgeted and allocated as part of that process. And that is why you're seeing it in the CIP is it extends that threshold of $100,000. And in fact, on July 11th, the city commission went ahead and granted this money. It, so it's in the CIP, but it's already been allocated um, through the end of this year. And one of the commissioners noted that that was because the state had passed a, a statute that would be effective July 1 if any school district was selling any land, they'd have to offer it to the legislature first 
and so there was um, a, some motivation to beat that date. So that money's gone already. But it's the it's the conformity to the to plan 2040 that I think is at issue this evening. Right, and, and it's your it's your thought that because this the nature of this um, might fit into a different place other than the CIP that it's not in conformance that the expense the investment is not in conformance with 2040 I'm not concerned with the expense being consistent with 2040 I'm concerned with the project yeah. being consistent with 2040 and I think that's all I don't think we're supposed to be looking at expenses or amount or whether we like right. the project or right. don't like the project. Right. If if you were to find that you thought it conformed with 2040, I think it would be helpful to identify how it conforms with 2040. If I may, Mr. Chair, I might have an answer to that question. In Chapter 4, Action Item 6, there it notes that providing affordable housing for all segments throughout the community is an action item that the Planning Commission and the City Commission have ultimately taken in there. And as part of that 6.1, it notes, consider the goals and policies of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board when creating land use plans and reviewing development applications. And 6.2 is uh, consideration, excuse me, encourage consideration of all incomes ranges when creating new developments and subdivisions. And 6.3 is to promote partnerships to advance affordable housing and safe housing options so I would I would put forward that it may it may meet 6.3 as noted on page 49 of plan 2040 for that respect and instance if that is the question before you <clears throat> want to offer anyone else an opportunity to add comments well, I, so I guess I, I'm just trying to really hone in on what what the concern is. I've heard a couple of different things. Is it the idea that of affordable housing is, is not in compliance with with the with the um, plan 2040? Because I, I do think that there's direct language about that in there. Or is it because a specific project has been identified and we're concerned that that particular project may not go a meet affordable housing the way that it, it's intended in plan 2040 um, or is it that there's a specific project named and we're concerned that that if we were to approve this that project would go through without having any other need or consideration of coming back um, in front of the planning commission because several of those have been resolved kind of in my mind and some of them ha haven't and so I'm just trying to hone in exactly on what the hiccup kind of might still be in my mind. <laughs> I don't know if anyone can answer that, but that's kind of where I'm trying to, seems to me like it, affordable housing is consistent with the plan. It seems to me that uh, what I heard you say, please let me know if I'm, if I'm wrong, Jeff, uh, that if we were to approve it, even with a specific project in mind, that project would have to come back before the planning commission for all other types of planning commission stuff, just not the allocated budget. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and so then I guess, are we at, because there's a specific plan name or p project named, we're not sure if that project is in compliance with 2040. Is that the pending issue? Do you anybody? I mean, I'm just anybody. That, I'm just trying to like wrap up the conversation we just had, especially between it was mostly between the two of you. But like, I was listening. Um, if, where we're at. Um, for me, 
There are two items in your list, and you did a lovely job summarizing that, I think. The first is, are we going to have neighborhoods that are based on income? We don't have that in Lawrence. I don't see anything in the comprehensive plan that leads us to that. Affordable housing does not mean you take a block of land and everybody who lives on that block of land has a limited income forever. My goodness, do you think the definition of affordable housing might change over time? Hmm. Um, which is another whole, leads you down a whole another set of inquiries. That's number one. Number two, if we approve this as this particular project that has not yet been defined as being um, compatible with 2040, we've already uh, given approval to something we don't even know what it is. We have, all we know is the acreage and the $1.2 million that the city commission has said, we're going to spend that money on that. So the issue is kind of just there being a specific project and we don't know enough about the project to know if it's in conformity kind of with 20, plan 2040, even though the term affordable housing and the support of affordable housing most certainly is sure, in the plan. Sure, absolutely. But I, yeah, no, I would certainly need to know a great deal more before I want to be considering making any acreage limited by income. You know, is it we found out that congregate housing doesn't work very well. We found out that generally affordable housing works well when it's mixed. We want all of the other kinds of zoning to include affordable housing, but then we want a plot of affordable housing that doesn't include any other kinds of, of, of housing that's not <coughs> based on income. It doesn't make sense. So it's kind of inconsistent with the mixed use idea yeah, of, of Plan 2040. And is absent from 2040. Other comments? If, if I could just ask a technical question, just because you did a great job of outlining that. So this particular project, though, as I heard um, Jeff say, will come back to the Planning condition, Commission for particulars. Maybe not the, the big concern that you have with this is all going to be limited income, but the particulars would come back to the Planning Commission for, for that particular project. Correct. If, if yes. Off the top of my head, and I'm trying to remember the zoning real quick, I think it's zoned GPI, if I remember correctly, which means it would very likely come back before you for both a preliminary plat and a rezoning at the time when the applicant has the plans and the details of that in place. And as far as I'm aware, those plans and details are not in place at this time. But yeah, anything that would be coming back to you for its approvals is required under Article 13. Mm -hmm. So the, that concern me in terms of it would be coming back to us, but that does not address your base concern with the all of it in one block, yeah. as you put it. So that's not you. No, okay. Another technical question, Jeff. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, we're, we talk about land use here. Mm -hmm. And I think when we start talking about how, what incomes and things, that sounds like policy to me. I don't know that we um, should even be th talking about what affordable housing means or doesn't mean. I think we're simply, you know, it, we're, we're, we should just talk about land use. Is that a fair statement? I would say so. I mean, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board and the governing body have both adopted a, a definition of affordable housing, and that's kind of in their purview. That is also inside of Plan 2040. You have that definition mirrored on page 
uh, 48 of what that is based upon the governing body's decision and, and the conversations with the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. But it, you are correct. Your, your charge at this one is to really look at it in conformance with that long-range vision that's in, in the plans and respect to that as part of that land use is how it's laying out. Now, details to follow on, on quite a number of the things in the, in, in the CIP for sure, but that's the general parameters step by 12748. discussion, but um, chapter 3 of, of um, Plan 2040 talks about growth and development and outlines the residential and the vision we have for residential, and it promotes a balanced mix of housing, and in that definition, that's where it talks about density, and it talks about the kinds of zoning that we have now that's based on density, and this concept of having zoning based on something else is what's new and ought to be part of 2040 when we do that because there is no other other way we can account for having it limited. The other thing is um, in that uh, July 11 meeting, city commission meeting, there were a number of documents. One document that I don't know who prepared it, but it was a fact sheet for this parcel of land and in that fact sheet it talked about there being uh, 60 to 70 units. In another um, memo from the city manager, it talked about 40 units. And in 2040, we talk about density. Those are the density issues. And those, we need to have something in 2040 that's going to help us identify density issues when it comes to um, residential housing. And it was only on that fact sheet that uh, engagement with the surrounding folks was limited, would not be uh, relevant until site plan issues. And that bothers me because under the GPI code, there are several kinds of residences that you can have. So if I were thinking about it, I might say, we don't, we don't need to go to a, to a zoning issue. We've got residential zoning under GPI. We can do whatever we want to do, as long as it fits the GPI zoning. Um, and, and I think that's a, it's an argument that it's a, it's a decent argument. And I understand that that's not the intent, sure. but I think that's why these items don't conform to our comprehensive plan. Just one point of clarification, Je Jeff. So is, are we saying for sure that it won't be a mixed use? I mean, we don't know yet, right? It, it might be mixed use. It might be an income-based. I mean, do we know? It, at this time, nothing has been submitted, so we don't know what I don't think would we should make more. assumptions on what it's. I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, it does say, um, uh, I'm assuming chapter... Anyway, on page 28, um, when it talks about ensuring new developments, it does say 7.2 is to intersperse affordable housing throughout Lawrence, which would yeah. indicate we're not to be clustering it. It would seem to me. Yeah, I agree. At Prashant's point, is there anything that says we are clustering it, or is that... Is that, a, I think, what you guys just talked about? Yeah, that exactly. That's, that's not, exactly my question. It's not a plan. There's this, it could be. It could be, yeah. There's nothing preventing it from being. Correct. 
Correct. I know that the discussions the Affordable Housing Advisory Board has had over the years, and I will hopefully capture this correctly and paraphrase it right, has been, you know, they've been concerned about it being located, you know, in certain neighborhoods repetitively in town. They've also been talking about it interspersed beyond other, other further west and the north and other parts of the community and not just located in certain neighborhoods or in certain areas. So their conversation about interspersed may be a little different than what the Planning Commission's conversation about interspersed is, but I think there's that, that connection between the two in that regard. I think you're both saying relatively the same things, it's just maybe not in the same elevations, if you will. I'm not doing a very good description on that one there. I will also just put in a plug again, this is some of the conversation we're having for the Land Development Code update, is to have these conversations because what you see in Land Development Code today is a representation of Horizon 2020. It has never really kind of morphed and gone into that fluidity of becoming into Plan 2040. So it's still, you're going to see a little bit of that disconnection between the two because what comes through in the Development Code may not be what comes through in the new code just because of the way the codes are structured. So. Hope that helped a little bit. <laughs> um, would, would I can't find it right in front of me right now. Would you read the specific line item that you are concerned about, like how it's phrased in in the? As soon as I find it, I will. Okay, I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't find it right now, and I just because um, I think it is important. Are we talking about something that has specifically been defined, and right. therefore where we know that they're adopting a clustered approach, or is this just? putting money towards some land that then may be developed to include affordable housing. Someday when I learn how to use a computer, I can do all this stuff. I'm not convinced that's better, because <laughs> I couldn't find it, and here I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll bet that nice fellow who talked to us could even pull up the, um, Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know if staff or somebody has that. <laughs> the comprehensive plan, um, excuse me. The capital CIP AH100001. Can you pull that up on the screen so everybody could see it and listen to me? I can try it, it might take me a minute. Yeah. And while we're looking for that, we do have a, it does seem like we do have a method forward that once we all take a look at what's being brought up, that we do have a procedure. Uh, for going forward, there could, as you mentioned before, a motion to, and then a vote on whether or not to take that out, and then that would be a letter, as I understand it, that from the Planning Commission right. as to the reasons for that. Um, so we do have a, right. yes. a way forward. I have I've found it, and I'll start reading, but perhaps if Mr. Horngate, mm -hmm. Perhaps if Brandon Thorngate finds it before you, my voice gives out, it would be better. Um, this request is for the acquisition and infrastructure of 8.78 parcel contiguous to Holcomb Park on the northwest corner of the park along Lawrence Avenue. The school district owns the site and wants to sell it for the purpose of developing permanently affordable homes. Um, if redeveloped for affordable housing, the site would require rezoning and is located within a residential area. And that's, that is one of the items. Ah, there. It's oh. too small to read. Too small to read. <laughs> 
the justification is this request moves the needle on the Lawrence Strategic Plan, SWN-5, percent of households that are experiencing houseless stress, spending more than 30% of their income on housing. SWN-6, point in time count of people experiencing homelessness, and SWN-7, affordable housing sales tax dollars invested divided by unit investments. Say eight acres, as I said? Yeah, 8.78. Eight. Nine acres. And then there, there's quite a long section about the, the Lawrence housing assessment shows 56% of all Lawrence renters in more than 10,000 households are cost burdened. Of these, most 6,000 households are severely cost burdened, meaning they are paying more than 50% of their income on housing costs. Among owners in Lawrence, 15% with a mortgage and 16% of owners without a mortgage are cost burdened. And it goes on with those kinds of uh, statistics. What um, I, I also want to point out, there's a sentence in here. The Holcomb site is one project, which uh, so there's several projects in the pipeline. The Holcomb site is one project, which provide mixed residential units, low income, very low income, low income, and moderate income or workforce housing. So that seems to, that strikes me as somewhat a, maybe a debating about what is affordable housing and how that criteria is, because this could very well, in some people's mind, uh, meet the bar of a mixed use as opposed to very just very low income. So to me, that's, that's not a conversation that we can decide when reviewing, that's not a conversation we can enter when reviewing the CIP to get into the debate of what counts as mixed use and what doesn't. That's sort of when the project comes to us. I, I think we could have that but conversation. But we don't have that information now, which is why, well, I don't want to be a dead horse, but I think that's why it doesn't conform to the plan. Okay. So, other discussion? Don't want to shut anything off. So we've got a motion and a second. Um, to accept the CIP, save this item. And the process for that, should the commission wish to approve that, would be to approve the CIP, and then we pin a letter, is that correct, that, that identifies this area. So the CIP hasn't stopped, CIP still is approved, but with a note saying, this is an area of concern we think is non-conforming. Correct. That's accurate. Yep. And any commissioner would be able to author that letter. It would be it would be the commission as a whole. You would all be authoring that letter and basically authorize the chair and the vice chair to sign that letter if that is the will of the commission at that point gotcha. in time. All right. So we this is basically we all agree on this motion. If, if we do, then our method is that letter. Would you then help craft the letter and we would sign that? Is that the way it works? Uh, this would be pretty unprecedented. We've never had one of these before, so we'd have to figure out the detail too, but I would expect that to be the case if that's the will of the commission. Okay. And just for the commission's knowledge on that one, there is a note in that section that says the governing body may override the plan in the report of the planning commission and the plan for the area concerned shall be deemed to have been amended. But that, you know, we can figure out, write a letter and, and figure out that detail. But this is, this would be a first for us. All right. 
and it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was, and I do think that if we were going to write the letter, I and mean, maybe we could take the vote, but uh, the motion as presented didn't have the reasoning behind it, and I believe that we would all have to be on board for the same reasoning in order to write that letter, because we'd all be, it, it wouldn't be for multiple reasons, right? It would be that yeah. for this particular reason given, everyone is yeah. agreeing. Just so that. you know, that's why I was kind of pausing on okay. that in the very beginning, <laughs> was to try to get the process down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it's a unique thing. Um, all right, so um, to move forward on this, um, and to your point, um, do you each care to retract the second and the motion and then restate that motion? Um, do we? I would just accept any friendly amendment you wanted to make to your motion. Well, when I made it, I included both of the affordable housing projects. Mm -hmm. And when I made it, I also had sent out four reasons and said, for the reasons stated. Okay. Um, so you're so. I, I, but is somebody recording this? No. Oh, yeah. Oh, you mean like written? Yeah. Like to, we could, oh. No. I don't think so. Okay. Um, but it can be transcribed from what you said. Yeah, I mean, yes. I think she's looking for right now to make sure yeah. she's got the language right on that. Well, yeah. So if we can tra have it transcribed from what I said. I don't know that we can do that real time now. Okay. Could we move on to other items and come, well, maybe we could vote on it and then come back. What I'd like to do, unless, unless you want to amend your motion, mm -hmm. that's your motion to decide whether right. or not to do. If you want to amend your motion, then you may. Um, your second gave um, her approval to make a friendly amendment. If not, we can go forward with a vote on uh, the motion as you've made it. That's up to you as the motion maker. Well, it sounds like it's not very clear. Chelsea, did you have an amendment that you wanted to make to it? I don't think so. I just wanted to make sure every. I just wanted to make sure that the reasoning for it, which I think, I think, I think through our discussion, I think it became clear, right? It would be approving. My understanding. I'm not rewriting your motion, but my understanding would just be that. It is to approve the CIP minus the two affordable housing um, projects and line items um, because um, they, um, as presented in the materials, are inconsistent with um, the comprehensive plan um, 2040, if I have that language correct. You, you would not be approving, you would be finding it, it finds it in conformance. Conformance. Okay. That they. The other ones are in conformance. But the CIP, the is, CIP in is in conformance, conformance minus those, two, minus those um, two, and that we believe that they are not because of the specific um, projects that were listed include clustered affordable housing as opposed to interspersed affordable housing. Is that that's kind of what I took away from our conversation? I think that's yeah. accurate. Yeah. And, and because the particular project is undefined at this time. That would, and I'm, I'm happy to accept that amendment. Okay, so we have a motion. We have uh, an amendment to that motion. The second is in place. Um, before we move to a vote, I um, just want to conclude on discussion around the dais, and I'll, um, I'll just start with a thought. Um, I believe that this 
type of investment is confirmed by um, staff um, belongs in the CIP, the, 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 the line item of the investment. That's this where it goes. Um, I believe that um, affordable housing and the approaches that our community, the project's community taken on is a part of 2040. In fact, it's risen to the level of the top handful of things that the city is focused on. Um, my general sense is that while I share the belief, and we're going to get into more of this later on some other items, while I, sh while I share that concern about um, uh, the makeup of a neighborhood and how this might be created, we haven't seen the item yet. Um, I also have some confidence that uh, the governing body is going to have um, quite a bit of feedback already from the discussion that we've had. Uh, as a part of that concern, so I uh, I, I intend to, uh, to vote no on the motion to withhold those items because I my, personally I would like to see those move forward and be able to get some traction those projects then come back to us so that we can help shape them. It's my opinion on that. Go around. Anybody else want to express an opinion or add comments? I I appreciate that you delved into it as deeply and presented a case for why you believe it is not in conformance. Um, one of the things that I have heard over the past couple of years from this commission, and I think that's what Gary was saying, they're listening to you right... Oh. They are... <laughs> They are listening to us right now and will get the message that this needs to be looked at and evaluated based upon the comments that have been made here. So I will probably vote against that knowing that it is going to come back to us and we will be able to help shape what we think this eight acres should be on this one project. But I, I appreciate what you have done because I, I certainly did not delve into it that deeply. So thank you, thank you. Thank you. Any other comments? I have one question still. Don't go ahead. No, I did not. Um, I still, I'm still trying to decide. Um, uh, I really appreciate the conversation um, and the dis it's, this has um, been really helpful to me, especially because I think my first meeting last year was this meeting, which was also uh, more interesting than than the CIP usually is. Um, and so I'm just wrapping my head around a lot. Uh, but I do have a question for Jeff. I just wanted to make sure. So if, because um, I, I think affordable housing is in compliance, and so a project having that would be in, com in compliance, or in conformity, sorry, in conformity. Um, my only question is just simply like, it doesn't mean that this project will go on kind of as described without any other um, look at it or how else it may fit into the plan when a specific project were to come before us or the actual plotting or the development of this piece of property. 
Right, there's a lot of those questions that are open on that one. <coughs> Excuse me, every time I talk, I have a frog. I'm sorry about that. Um, and you know, there is an agreement that would exist between the governing body and the and tenants to homeowners as part of that, and that might be stipulated as part of that agreement in there. But there's nothing that would just set it in stone that it would have to be of a certain caliber or make, to my knowledge, at this point in time. That is still an open question that can be resolved and worked on as the project progresses. I hope I answered that. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you did. I just, yeah. Thank you. Steve, I think you had your hand up a couple times. Yeah, I, I appreciate the sentiments that it, you and, and Commissioner Thomas shared. I, I uh, share in your position that I intend to vote against the motion. I have to admit when I was looking over the materials for the meeting this week, I was you know, doing issue, issue spotting, trying to figure out those things where there might be an argument that it, something wouldn't be in conformance with uh, Plan 2040. And this one, uh, just did not catch my eye at all. So I, I appreciate the discussion tonight as, um, you know, it's been informative and, and enlightening to hear a different perspective on this. Um, but I, I think, you know, on a narrow land use question uh, before us and, and whether or not this, these two line items concerning affordable housing uh, comply with a, a plan that specifically states that affordable housing is a, an objective and a, a value for this community. Um, you know, I, I intend to, um, I, I don't have any qualms with those projects inclusion here, understanding that it sounds like we will have an opportunity to review uh, in the normal course as we would with other projects moving forward. I have a question. Um, assuming that the motion is voted down, um, if, the, if there is a zoning application that comes to the Planning Commission, as you all know, one of the I factors to look at on a zoning application is conformity with the comprehensive plan. So does a vote tonight mean that we have said whatever the project is, it conforms to the comprehensive plan as long as it includes affordable housing? I think it's a, just my perspective, it's a decision that each would put to make for me. It would not automatically check that box. This Randy Larkin, deputy city attorney, that would not have any impact on a particular plan. You're making just whether or not this inclusion in the CIP meets uh, what it is that the this plan 2040. Anything that comes before the city at some point in time will be a particular plan, and it will assess that particular plan, that rezoning, that site plan based on whether or not it meets Plan 2040, not whether or not the general concept of affordable housing meets yeah. Plan 2040. And will the minutes then include some summary of this discussion? Your, your meetings are video recorded, so the whole video would be available to anybody that would pull it up and watch it. But we don't have any summary of the discussion. You have the, like the minutes of the action summary you would have there, but not a verbatim minutes or not generated for planning commission. Separate topic. We'll come back to that. Yes. Um, so, any other discussion? I'm just going to say, since I second it, that I am probably going to um, end up voting against it because that was my very specific question. I was w afraid that the statute was saying that no matter what, we approved it as it being in compliance. In the future, and since that's not what the statute is saying, um, I'm probably going to go ahead and, and uh, vote against this motion, and then in favor of approving it collectively as a part I of the CIP. I would CID. withdraw my motion. 
All right, well, uh, would you like to withdraw I'll your withdraw second? I'll withdraw my second. Would you like to withdraw your motion? I did. All right, with that, I'd entertain. <laughs> th thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, I'd entertain a, uh, a motion on this item. Uh, I'll try. <laughs> uh, we've reviewed the projects in the City of Lawrence 2024-2028 Capital Improvement Plan, and we find that they conform and we're going to forward to forward forward to the city commission with a recommendation for approval. Second. No second. Next seconds. Any more discussion? Those in favor, aye. 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 Opposed. Thank you. Motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the conversation. I really truly do. Um, on to item two. Everybody okay? Do we? Need a quick break? Are we good? I'm okay. Thank you for looking. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't looking down there for anybody. <laughs> Look at everybody. All right. So we have we have item two up in front of us. Um, this is a uh, an, a, a uh, not very common uh, recommendation to deny a uh, preliminary plat and a variance. Um, and uh, Ellie Mullins is here. Ellie, I think are you on, you're online, Ellie? Is that right? I'm online. All right, you're going to talk us through these two items. Okay. Um, good evening, uh, Ellie Mullins, Planning and Development Services. Uh, let me just get my presentation going here. Okay, is that in presentation mode for everybody? Yes. Okay, perfect. So the item before you tonight is a preliminary plat for a seven lot subdivision located southeast of the intersection of Comfort Court and Walnut Street. The plat includes a platted tract and part of an existing platted lot. Platting action is required to further subdivide the properties. Planning Commission approval of the preliminary plat is the first step in that process. The subject property um, is located in the RS7 zoning district, and the applicant has indicated that the lots will be developed with detached dwellings, which is a permitted use in the RS7 district. The proposed lots will take access off Comfort Court. Um, a previous variance for minimum cul-de-sac right-of-way width was approved by the commission um, back on December 21st, 2022, uh, to maintain the 50-foot right-of-way on Comfort Court, uh, instead of dedicating additional right-of-way to increase that to 60 feet. Uh, the plot includes the installation of sidewalks along the proposed frontage, extension of utility lines, and proposed utility easements along the perimeter of each lot. Proposed lots must meet the dimensional standards of the district and the subdivision design standards. Two of the proposed lots, lot one and lot seven, uh, do not meet these standards and have variances associated with them. All other lots are in conformance with the standards. Here's a bit of a closer look at those. Uh, as mentioned, uh, the plat includes two variances for your consideration, one from the minimum corner lot width for proposed lot one, and one from the minimum zoning district lot width for proposed lot seven. Variances from the subdivision design guidelines um, must meet the three criteria on the screen to be approved. 
So for our first variance, um, corner lots are required to have a 20% greater lot width than the district minimum. In this case, that would be 72 feet for proposed lot one. The plot proposes a width of roughly 64 feet for lot one. Uh, this is similar to the corner lot on the west side of Comfort Court. However, those lots were divided under previous subdivision regulations uh, that required greater corner lot widths, but did not specify by how much. The requirement to provide the minimum corner lot width uh, did not meet the definition of an unnecessary, unnecessary hardship. The subject properties proposed for subdivision are undeveloped and are not restricted by existing buildings or lot lines. Uh, similarly, the property does not have significant topographic or environmental challenges that would confine development to certain parts of the property. It's not necessary to divide the property into the proposed seven lots as opposed to six, uh, which would allow minimum standards to be met. Uh, financial loss or the loss of potential financial gain may not be considered as an unnecessary hardship. Uh, no part of the property is prevented from usage by providing the record required corner lot width. Variances must also be in harmony with the intended purpose of the regulations. Uh, the intent and purpose of the subdivision regulations uh, may be seen on this slide. Uh, while the proposed width maintains the neighborhood's development pattern, it does not maintain the zoning district's development pattern. Um, the zoning district requirements provide a code-based ex expectation for neighboring property owners and how that area is going to develop. As well, reducing the corner lot width reduces the available area for open space, light, and air by increasing the density beyond which the zoning district permits. Um, Lastly, variances shall not jeopardize health, uh, public health, safety, and welfare. Uh, staff didn't identify uh, any concerns related to this criteria, so the variance does meet this last criteria. On to the second variance. Um, the second variance is to reduce the minimum lot width for um, lot seven to 51 feet uh, from the required 60 feet for RS7 zone properties. Uh, this variance was considered under the same criteria uh, with similar determinations by staff. The requirement, once again, does not meet the uh, definition of an un unnecessary hardship as these are undeveloped lots without challenges that would confine development. The property owner is not prevented from using the property for the permitted uses in the district. Again, the variance differs from the intended purpose of the regulations to provide a predictable and orderly density and development pattern for properties within a specific zoning district. Um, and again, similarly, there were no issues identified um, related to public health, safety, or welfare by granting the variance. Both of the requested variances did not meet all three criteria, um, which they need to meet all three to be approved, uh, and staff recommends denial for both variances. Um, without approval of the two variances, um, the proposed lots do not meet uh, criteria two and three for preliminary plat approval, requiring lots to meet district and design standards. As such, staff recommends denial of the preliminary plat as proposed. If the commission were to approve the variances, the proposed plat would be in conformance with uh, um, the approval criteria seen on the screen for preliminary plats. Um, with that, I'll conclude my presentation, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Ellie. Um, it's uh, got a few minutes here for the applicant. I see Paul's on the uh, Paul Warner's on the uh, on Zoom. Paul, ten minutes Hi. if you'd like. 
Perfect. Uh, good evening. Uh, sorry I couldn't be there in person. Um, and um, <clears throat> Erica from Habitat is here as well. So um, unfortunately, once again, um, we get to d discuss the subdivision on regulations. Um, and I understand that um, Ellie gave a great presentation. I understand most of her comments. Um, if she could, I'd really like her to put that aerial up that she first started with while I talk about um, some of this stuff. Um, I think it's important to point out that it's just not mere financial loss. But so these lots, when you see the aerial and you know all the lots on the west side, this entire street was designed to be mirrored when the owner was ready to sell his property and Habitat had enough money to buy it to mirror that street. Granted, the subdivision regulations have changed. Um, but we do have a project. This is an interesting discussion after the last hour you guys just had. So um, Habitat had always planned on this. The owner, we've always planned on this. It was just a matter of timing. So here we are in front of you. So we know these houses are habitats. Um, a typical structure is 28, maybe 32 feet wide. So um, this is a great example when you look at the corner lot. Our exterior side yard setback, for instance, is only 10 feet, not 25 feet. And the reason a corner lot needs to be larger on some newer Western Lawrence subdivisions is because you get two side yards. So you get 25 feet in the front and 25 foot exterior. We don't need that. Um, these lots are 60 feet wide across the street. We know exactly what we are going to build. So this is already under contract. Um, price has been set. As you heard, we've already, we're here in December. So it's um, almost September to try to wrap this up. But it's the difference between um, seven lots for the same price and going to six. So this is where the snowball effect hits. Um, as Ellie mentioned, we have to install a sidewalk on the entire length of the street in front of our new lots because that's what the new regulations say, which is fine. But that cost of the sidewalk is the same whether it's six or seven lots. We have to run a sewer down Walnut Street and down the entire east side of all of these lots to provide a sanitary sewer. So again, it's the same cost, whether it's six lots or it's seven. So there d does come a point when, um, you know, we've just spent an hour talking about affordable housing. Every day you open the paper while we don't have enough lots. and. When we have a project, the street's already there. We think this is a semi-no-brainer for seven lots. And every time we turn around, the, um, the costs just, they keep going up. And, you know, it's not just the financial part. It is that, so we're eliminating a lot. So again, we sit around and talk about why there's no lots, there's no houses, there's a housing problem in Lawrence and um, we probably should be arguing our new favorite word is density. We should be arguing that we could actually have more lots on the street. Um, but that would require rezoning and that's a separate issue. But um, again, I just think you can look at the existing conditions on how this entire street was laid out, granted 20 years ago. 
Um, losing a lot does nothing for anybody. Um, I'm still always surprised in the staff report when it lists um, the financial loss or gain from the city and, some, and most of the time it says none. Um, I mean, on one hand, six lots, seven houses, six houses, once they're built, it's an ongoing loss for the city every year in property tax. Um, that, you know, it all adds up. There was the whole article in the paper today about our budget and everything else, and you guys just spent an hour talking about the capital improvements. But um, in our minds, you can look at the street, know how it was planned, and um, I'd really like you to support the variances, and we'd have a plaid ready to go, and Erica would be ready to build some houses. So I will stand for questions, and uh, Erica would want to chime in as well. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Erica, did you have something for us? I do. Um, Erica Zimmerman, Lawrence Habitat. I would just reiterate what Paul says. There is a financial hardship in that now that we now if we go down to six lots, we have to spread all of those costs across six houses as opposed to seven houses, which then in turn make those houses more expensive and the barriers to homeowners moving into those houses become greater. Um, you, we just heard just a little bit ago that in 2018, 10,000 households were experiencing hardships and not being able to afford their housing. That was 2018 before COVID hit. Um, and so just taking one more lot just exasperates that problem. Um, and like Paul said, no matter how many houses we have on that lot, it's still gonna be the same cost. This has been in our strategic plan for many years before I was executive director. So it's something that we've had in the plan, we've had in the works, um, and unfortunately the, the plans changed for um, 2040 became about and um, changed some things um, in the way that um, the lots are. Um, so again, I would just ask that you approve these variances um, in order to get additional affordable housing in our community that is much needed. Thank you. Erica, thank you. Um, we're gonna open the floor to public feedback. Is there anyone here to speak on this item? Anyone on Zoom to speak on this item? I don't see any. Thank you. All right, uh, we'll bring this back to uh, the commission. Um, I have one question to kind of lead off. Um, and I, if I understand right, the, the non-conformance to code is in that one corner lot, is that correct? Ellie will correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the lot one, which is the one right at the intersection to the north, and then the last lot on the south, which I believe is number seven, yeah. is yes. the They're two that the, have the... Right at the start of the bulb of the cul-de-sac? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Ellie, did yes. I... Yes. Okay. Right. And then the, as I'm just looking at the map, um, I don't see any dimensions on the other three lots that are um, in there. Are those... Three lots that are so already it, there, conforming or non-conforming. Yes. So, um, so lot one is only lot one and lot seven do not conform to the density or the dimensional and density standards or the subdivision design standards themselves. So, that lot one it doesn't conform to the corner lot width, and then lot seven does not conform um, with just the minimum district lot width. Um, measured at the front setback. Right. So as I'm, as I'm 
Okay, on, on the areas that have been developed, I guess is what I'm wondering about. Are there, are there anything on the other side of the street where houses exist that are below that 60 foot? I would have to go back and measure again. I don't believe it showed, I, I looked at the original plat um, and I don't believe it showed the lot width measured at the, um, at the setback. It showed, I believe, the curve um, dimension and, and on, on, on the cul-de-sac. On, on lot seven where it's too small, it's just right there at the, at the beginning of it, at, at where it touches the cul-de-sac, is that correct? Everywhere from back from behind that, you, you get to an appropriate size lot, is that accurate? So 20 foot, the front setback will be measured 25 feet from that curb line, from that right-of-way line. So um, 25 feet back needs to be 60 feet, um, and gotcha. it is about 51. Understood, all right, thank you. <laughs> Discussion, questions? Let's see. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, oh. um, go ahead. I, a quick question. So, um, in reading this um, particular project, I understand that the houses that are going to be built here are generally narrower. Um, so, this is for um, Emily, generally narrower than uh, what would typically be in this. So, I'm wondering if, uh, in terms of the spirit of criteria two, um, you have harmonious and orderly development, conducive to health, safety, aesthetics, convenience. Given that these houses are much narrower than your typical house, would not the sort of uh, intent of these regulations be met with these smaller houses? We don't currently have um, any building plans, um, so we're really looking at the division of the lots based on the zoning um, and what the zoning requires. The, the, Ellie's right because this is a platting action. There's not anything that's pertinent to the buildings that are in play at this point in time. It's really down to does the line work on the plat conform or does not conform to the subdivision regulations. So it's not pertinent to the structures necessarily. It's really about the line work being laid down with the plat that is the question. Okay. <clears throat> yes. Go ahead. Michelle. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Chair Rexor. I think this ties into the last item we'll discuss tonight. And, um, you know, this probably was a conforming, uh, the dimensions were probably conforming many years ago, and now they're not conforming because the code has changed. Um, and we're going to try and fix that with the last item for tonight. So I'm in favor of approving the plat based on the direction that we're going as a county. Because I think that's what we're going to talk about in item four or five, the last item. Yes. I think of times we have approved setbacks on many, I shouldn't say many, on several, we have approved setbacks on several uh, buildings, even though uh, the code has changed, if it is similar to what was already there. Uh, this was, and I, uh, Paul 
was saying this was set up to mirror the other side of the street and it would mirror the other side of the street it, and it could be built except for the new code eliminates that and I, I, I would go ahead and approve it and say let's just approve this setback here is and I don't know if we're allowed to talk about um, the housing itself, but it just makes sense to do this. Lot 7 is a huge lot. I forget, it's 15,000, 17,000 square feet. It is a huge lot. There is plenty of room on that. It just doesn't meet the frontage code by 8 feet at 25 feet back. The corner lot <clears throat> itself does mirror the house on the other side of the street. I'm, I'm in favor of just approving these two variances, and that's how I would vote. Thank you, Commissioner Thomas. If I may, Mr. Chair, just as a point of clarification there, item number five on your agenda later this evening is not uh, amending the subdivision regulations. It's amending the other parts of the land development code. So they're, they're not, not going to directly alter each other in, in respect in that. I just wanted, in case that was a, just wanted to clarify just in case on that item. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I guess a, a couple comments. Um, one, in, in response to Commissioner Thomas, your your comments that this has already been set up in a particular way. I, I guess I would argue that it, it hasn't been set up, and that's why it's before us tonight. That this is just an undeveloped piece of land that is now being platted for a particular purpose. As such, it needs to comply with the code as it exists today. I think we can distinguish this kind of case from some of the ones that we see. Um, come through on, on other occasions where there is, it's a, a house already existing in um, a built neighborhood that it doesn't make sense to have them comply with current uh, development standards because the rest of the neighborhood isn't going to be in compliance. But here we have at, at least, you know, as we've heard, six or seven uh, lots would all be in the same situation. Um, I guess the, the other comment generally is that in our work on, on this commission, there are a lot of different types of actions that come before us. And on a lot of them, we're given a fair amount of latitude as to how we should think about them, how we should uh, get to a conclusion of yes or no. And I'd say generally, and I, I welcome a correction from, from Randy or, or other staff tonight uh, that on variances we actually have pursuant to state law we have a, a very clear uh, set of criteria that we have to apply in these types of situations that there are three factors that have to be present and if any one of those three factors isn't met then it's not appropriate to grant the variance and the one that that stands out to me and, and this was identified in the in the staff report is that there has to be a finding that the strict application of the regulations would create an unnecessary hardship on the applicant and I, I think as as we've seen in the report and as we've uh, discussed on other types of variances before us it, the mere uh, prospect of financial loss isn't an unnecessary hardship um, so with all that in mind I, I this is a obviously it sounds like a great project by a, a great organization that does a lot for the community but given our charge as a, a body that uh, has to apply land use standards I would be inclined to vote against uh, 
or vote against these variances in, in the plat as a whole. Thank you, Mr. Mitch. I'll just say that I, I really want to vote yes on, on this. Uh, I really do, that, which is why I was trying, you know, with the smaller houses that maybe the second criteria could be met. But Commissioner Munch is right. I'm feeling really boxed in by the fact that we have to apply these criteria to a preliminary plat like this in accordance with the regulations that it has to meet all those criteria. I'm struggling here trying to find a way to get to yes. Um, so if anybody yeah. can help do that, um, that would be great. Um, I'm trying to think of other variances that we've discussed that might apply here that would allow us to get to yes of other variances before this body where there has been You know, I'm thinking of the, like a lot of the roadway widths, those are pretty sta straightforward because no one's gonna s widen that street anyway. That, but I'm not, I'm struggling. I can't find a, I can't find one in my memory that would apply here. Think about some of those things yeah. as well. Other thoughts? Well, thoughts, one, I agree with. Commissioner Ashworth, it's like, I, I want to find a way to vote yes, but then also, I know we've talked about this before, if what Commissioner Munch is saying is true, and I don't doubt you, that legally we can't do anything except say no, why are we even talking about it? Why is it even before us if that's the only vote we can do? And I know we've talked about things like a uh, um, consent. consent agenda something like this where if there's truly no option that's where it ought to go but again i'd like to find a way to get the yes well, I, I think to that point i, I agree like if surely we're something more than just an ai platform right. that you, you can say yes or no yeah. does this work and and i think it's up to us as individuals and community members to determine if the three criteria are met and from the application and from the discussion tonight, I, I just haven't heard how the uh, unnecessary hardship factor has, has been met. So the discussion is, is useful. I, I, like Commissioner Ashworth, I, I would welcome uh, a path to, to, to doing this if the, the right facts and arguments are suggested, but I haven't heard them. Just out of curiosity, I'm curious, is this, this is sort of um, situation that might be dealt with um, and, and basically not come to this situation with the, with the new Lawrence Development Code update? Is this something that would, <laughs> uh, or potentially would, could be in, in the details? Yes, I think this is one of those things we'd look at as, as kind of one of those things to kind of look at going forward because this is, mm -hmm. This is a bit unique in the way that our code treats variances and the way that platting is done, but it's something we're definitely taking a look at as part of that update process. Yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, go ahead, because it's related to that. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I mean, if it's really the code that, um, you know, we're violating or the developer is violating, but there isn't any uh, material harm to the city or if we're not affecting, you know, the route of fire trucks. I mean, if it's really just that, I think that 
on balance, increasing the number of houses that are affordable is, uh, I mean, outweighs any, you know, sort of technic technical code violation. So that's that's where I, that's where my head is. So. Mm. I just was curious as so. Oh. Um, Criteria one is obviously about the unnecessary hardship upon the, the individual, the applicant themselves. And um, if we look at criteria number three, it talks generally about the public health, safety, and welfare. Um, I don't know if Randy or someone can provide a little bit more. Is that simply the fact that there'd be some actual danger someone getting run over because there's not enough space, right? Or can um, public health, safety, and welfare be broader than that and that we as a community have found affordable housing to be a part of pub the public health and safety and welfare? Right? So I, I'm just curious as to that third criteria, the breadth or the narrow aspect of it. This is Randy Larkin, a Deputy City Attorney. I think, I think you've hit on it exactly. It is kind of a catch-all, and it is to make the community a better place. And that is whether it's providing safety, whether it's providing housing, whether it's providing whatever it is that the community needs. And so if you believe or find that this project meets that criteria where it provides for the public health, safety, and welfare, then it meets that criteria. So what you're doing is you're looking at all the totality of the circumstances surrounding this project, applying those factors from the city code, and then determining whether or not it meets those standards for granting a variance. So that's kind of what your charge is in this, in this case. But that's just one of three criteria. But if, so I'm just trying to think, um, um, it absolutely has to create an unnecessary hardship and that that cannot be financial, correct? Correct. By definition, finances are not accountable to an, or excuse me, financing cannot be equatable in an unnecessary hardship in the definition. Mm -hmm. And the unnecessary hardship has to be upon the applicants. Yes. Not general, general public or anything <laughs> like that. That's what I was just trying to get the criteria one and criteria two and understand the breadth. I didn't them. see upon the subdivider. Mm -hmm. I guess that's uh, correct. It, it's, it's really, and I don't have it in front of me to go off of, so Ellie might have it available, but it, it is an unnecessary hardship to apply to the, the applicant at hand at that point. So it's not necessarily a function of the district as a whole, but in the application of the of the application on this particular application. But the applicant could be um, affordable, affordable housing, right? I mean, it could be the organization, mm -hmm. right? And so then the, un, the unnecessary hardship is not about financial, but, uh, but about um, the mission and providing the charge of the public's health, safety, and welfare. Yeah. I'm working. I'm just, <laughs> 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 your brain's working. Um, I'm just trying to, to figure it, it out. Mm -hmm. mm. It's just add a thought. Um, I I think you're absolutely mm. right, Commissioner Munch. That yeah, I, I love the way you'd phrase that. Is you know, there were plans, things changed. You have to develop to, to what's there. So what we have to do um, is, and while my heart goes out to him on that, by the way. Um, just a rotten deal um, but I have to go down that path on those three criteria on a variance and um, I think everyone agrees and staff does as well that the third criteria is met 
Um, I think I could make a case on the second one um, that it fits in the harmony of, of that neighborhood and what it's tended to be. It's basically gonna mirror those streets. Uh, that first one on hardship, uh, when we were out walking around um, that uh, site, um, a, uh, a, a lady from across the street, who was part of the original development, came out and said, when are you guys gonna start building out here? And of course, we're not, you know, we're, that's not our thing. We're, you know, planning commission just came out to take a look and she told the story about how were it not for, I'm gonna get emotional, were it not for this opportunity, she would have no place to be. She just lost her husband. The environments created for this individual would not exist if not for that. So yeah, there's one lot that's in play and that one lot could go away and they could go from seven to six and try to find their way through the math of it. But when I think about hardship in this, I, I I'm thinking about the extension of that to the people this division is built for. And I can I can get there on this particular item. If it was if it was dramatically different, if there was an issue of, of a fire truck being able to get in there, hard hard no. I mean hard no. But in this particular case, we've got this oddity in the code that, that things have changed. Um, and I I can get there on approving the variance, um, largely because of that, uh, the understanding that I got about what hardship can actually mean. So that's where I am. So, I mean, that just comes back to my question. I mean, I can get there too if I can read hardship beyond the person's that has filed the paperwork, right? Like, but, like that's what I'm trying to, whose hardship can I consider? Because I definitely think I can get there if I can think of more than just um, yeah. the, the applicant. And if I can go beyond and think about the applicant's mission and et cetera, I can get there. Generally, when staff reviews it, we don't review it based on the applicant. We review it based on the letter of the code that is there because ultimately the property could be sold or the property could be transferred. There's any number of things that could occur after the fact of, of the granting of the variance. So we're not looking at who the applicant is or the, the mission of it. We're simply looking at does it or does it not meet the letter of the code as part of this ministerial process that you do at the platting exercise. Okay, so I guess what I'm really asking for, I'm using the wrong terminology. I'm asking who is the subdivider? Who, who are you defining as? Because in, in here it says strict application of these regulations will create an unnecessary hardship upon the subdivider. And I'm just trying to define that so that I know whose hardship it is that I can, I'm allowed to take if I'm, and so who's the subdivider? The subdivider is the applicant who okay. submits for I just wasn't sure if I was mixing those two words up incorrectly. Um, This is uh, true. This is uh, a variance quasi-judicial. We are the final. Is that not, they have a, a path through city commission? Correct. Your decision would be appealable to the city commission. Okay. Okay. It's helpful. So who is the subdivider? Um, it is an application submitted by Paul Warner Architects on behalf of Lawrence Habitat for Humanity Incorporated. So it's Habitat, habitat, habitat. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Excuse me, and Wesley R. Kabler, trustee, property owner of record. So, so could the hardship be that Habitat and their mission then doesn't have enough houses to provide for right. what they want to do? 
I can get this right Martin uh, deputy city attorney if I could maybe give a little direction you just can't consider financial hardship as a or financial loss as that issue here as the hardship but it could be something else as Commissioner just stated. So you have some flexibility, but it just cannot be a financial loss. We're gonna lose money, so we need seven lots, because if we do six lots, we're gonna lose money. That's not hardship, but there could be other hardships, and that's what you need to think about. Just to find. Yeah. Well, certainly Commissioner Hayden's um, broaching of that hardship has gotten me there for that. Yeah. Well, I'd also, so, uh, I hate to, yeah. but I also hate to, to say, I mean, I, I'm not sure, can we, we haven't heard that necessarily from the applicant, so I don't know. I mean, what was provided? We had had a variance before where the only Paul's got his hand up. He'd be happy to answer. <laughs> yeah, if you don't. yeah. I just we, we've had variances before, and the applicants have have only mentioned financial hardship, and we've had to go this right. direction. So that's just mm -hmm. important. You want to ask for any clarification on that? Sure, Paul. Do you have any clarification on that? I'm gonna I'm gonna try. That that's an awesome question. So. Because the way the contract is written, um, there, there are no lots today. So um, Habitat is buying this property for an agreed amount of money already. So on one hand, I'd argue that the subdivider um, who's selling the property is the one who's getting the same amount of money, whether it's six lots or it's seven. So now it falls back to Habitat to make the rest of this work. And that's where I think um, the discussion you're having is awesome about what they do. But um, while he's my client as well, um, that's why I helped broker this um, negotiation and tried to get it all put together. The man who gets to sell the property is getting paid the same amount of money. Um, so in my mind, the hardship falls back further even on um, Habitat to complete their mission as Gary just talked about and the number of houses and being one short, you know, um, Erica knows way more than I do about actual numbers, but um, we've been here for years. There's only seven on the street already. Um, finding lots right now for the price we're talking about is, is, is practically unheard of. Um, so it's not like she can go generate some more money and all of a sudden go find a different piece of property. Um, this street again was designed for habitat, laid out for habitat. That's why I think it's a little curious that your earlier discussion was based around not having a project. We, we have a project in front of you and Habitat's going to build these houses. Um, so hopefully that's all thank, a little relevant. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. And it's your question. It does, thank yeah. you. Sure. Yeah. Other discussion? You, you know, if, it, if it weren't for when I'm thinking about the hardship question and thinking about this as affordable housing and the, the stated concern the city has or I would worry a little bit about precedent setting with being taking this broader brush with looking at the entity that is looking for a variance. So considering one mission versus another mission would make me a little uncomfortable. How I'm, how I'm 
thinking about that in my mind, however, is that this is a, a very much a stated goal um, of the city. So I might get there thinking of it that way. Otherwise, I'd be a little concerned about comparing mission to mission if we're looking at who's the, who's the subdivider. And I guess I'm not trying to put a value mm -hmm. on the mission. I mean, I think it's coming out because we all highly value, we seem to highly value um, this mission. But I guess I was trying to get away from what's financial um, hardship mm -hmm. versus other types of hardship. And so it's less about the mission of the organization mm -hmm. as is kind of like their hardship might be not being able mm -hmm. to fulfill um, their duty or what they're doing beyond just not having. And I don't know that I necessarily get there that that's enough to go beyond financial hardship. But I, but I was looking more for something to, to distinguish that versus try to uplift motion or uh, mission over mission. Mm -hmm. uh, I see your point. Um, yeah, well, um, just to give my uh, thoughts out there, um, I do intend to um, vote and basically to uh, approve these variants uh, for couple of reasons. One is, you know, Plan 2040 talks about density. In, in my opinion, seven lots are better than six. Uh, also, Plan 2040 talks about affordable houses. And if the developer is going to divide the cost between seven houses, it will be a lot cheaper than try to divide it between the six. So those who are buying the home Lawrence residents, families, will be able to afford those houses. Um, and third, you know, in a previous discussion, we talked about, you know, subdivisions and how they somehow there was a worry about uh, being too cluster. Well, here's your answer. It's not. So it's, I mean, RS7 is, is big enough. And for all those reasons, I, I tend to approve this. Regard, regardless of, I understand the criteria and everything, I just, I'll just put it on a scale. Which one does more harm? And, and that's, I, I think that is the reason why we're having this discussion. We have two items in front of us. One's the plat, one's the variance. The variance is first. Jeff, did you have something? You actually have three items before. You have two variances in the plat, and the Thank procedure you. to vote would be for the variances ahead of the plat. Yes. I was just going to outline that. Is there, so, heard a lot of feedback. Is there anyone else that wants to, you want to weigh in? Well, <laughs> Thank you very much, but sure. I certainly um, would approve the variances I, for the reasons everybody has been stating. I think this is really pretty clear. And even though there will be differences of missions between subdivider, the criteria is the subdivider. Um, so whether it's an applicant or subdivider, we have to go with subdivider. And I think that the problem for habitat is not having enough houses to build. So One of their challenges for sure. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Any other comment on variances? Everybody know where they want to be? Any other questions? So we have two. And as we do this, this is a little bit unusual because we have a recommendation to deny, so we're not referencing staff's 
recommendation, but stating that we uh, want to approve the variances. Um, and I'm looking at this language. Okay, there's, there are two separate ones. Um, this, uh, we've got this here. Does anybody want to take a uh, stab at what that motion might be? I, I will. All right. I move that we approve the variance requested from section 20-810A2B of the subdivision regulations to permit a reduced corner lot width of 64 feet on proposed lot one. Second. Made and seconded. Jeff, does that language meet the need? Yes. Very good. Discussion? All in favor, aye. 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 Post? Same sign. All right. Oh, we got him. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> looking right past me. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Steve. I'm so sorry. And, uh, and I will end? make a motion that we approve the variance requested from section 20-810A2I of the subdivision regulations to permit a reduced lot width of 51 feet on proposed lot 7. Second. 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 Discussion? Those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed? Gotcha. Thank you. <laughs> All right, the last item is the plat. We've spent the majority of our time talking about the variances. We haven't uh, had a bunch of time talking about the plat themselves. Is there any discussion that people want to take up on the plat? If not, I'd entertain a motion. I move that we approve the preliminary plat PP-23-00163 for a comfort court addition and leave it at that. That's <laughs> <laughs> about ready to that say something. for you, Jeff. Thank you. Second. Second. Discussion? Those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, thanks for being with us for so long, uh, you two. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. You guys have a great night. All right, we are coming up on item number three, and I'm going to say again, do, do we want to take a pause for a minute for a break? Yes, please. Yes, let's do. <laughs> let's take 10 minutes. Let's be back at um, 8.30, please. It's nice to have somebody else who also wants Let's come back in. Here we go. All right, up next is item number three. Uh, we're going to consider a, uh, a request to rezone. Um, not quite an acre from single dwelling residential to general public and industrial use. And Catherine is here to talk us through this topic. Catherine? Yes, good evening, commissioners. Let me go ahead and get my presentation going here. And if you let me know that you can view that all right, I'll you can see it. just go in here. Okay, perfect. Okay, I am here to present the rezoning item Z2300239, which is located at 3500 Clinton Place. 
this rezoning, uh, the purpose is to rezone approximately 0.98 acres, just under an acre, located at 3500 Clinton Parkway from RSO, which is our single dwelling residential office district, to GPI, which is the general public and institutional district. The GPI district is a special purpose district used to accommodate institutional uses and has a narrow scope, which we can talk about. This particular request um, is before you tonight to accommodate a community mental health facility, and that use is only permitted in the GPI special purpose district. So some key points for this particular request. Uh, the property is currently vacant, was formerly a medical office building. The rezoning would accommodate a community mental health facility use, which contains uh, such services as medical offices, therapy space, uh, day group spaces, associated services with those uh, services as well, waiting rooms, inpatient and outpatient services, including overnight care. The use is defined in 2017-70. That use classification, as I mentioned, is only permitted in the GPI zoning district. GPI is that special purpose-based district with a narrow set of uses for both governmental and public institutions. Property is currently zoned RSO, which currently would accommodate all of the services provided under that umbrella proposed in the district, except for that inpatient care aspect for more than 24 hours. So the district does already permit um, most of the services being provided. The request to rezoning and administrative site plan uh, would follow, does not include any proposed changes to the site or any changes to the building footprint. The existing building as it is currently located on the site is the concept plan for this proposal. Any changes that would occur would be interior modifications. The site plan will act as the institutional development plan as required in section 201307 uh, for GPI districts. And that uh, permits an administrative site plan for properties 10 acres or less. And then building permits for changes to the interior or changes to the facade of the building would follow uh, su successful approvals uh, for the rezoning and site planning applications. So this is the surrounding zoning in the area, just so that you can hone yourself in on uh, what is surrounding this particular parcel. It is surrounded by that RSO, a single dwelling residential office district, which is already developed. Uh, the uses in the district, we'll talk about in a moment. Um, we also have some plans, commercial development district a little bit to the north, some planned residential development to the west, multi-dwelling residential uh, duplex to the southwest, and a planned uh, urban development to the east. Land uses that exist in the area, in that sea of red uh, that you see, which is the RS zoning designation, that is current medical and business offices or professional offices. The yellow is the single dwelling residential, which is delineated by those duplexes uh, to the southwest. Brown is multi-dwelling residential, which is to the west. So as a reminder for commissioners, I always like to put the slide in to let you know that public notice um, 
is posted by the applicant, the notice signed, the newspaper and written notice are sent out by staff. Um, all correspondence, and we received several, um, was included in the packet and the deadline for that was 10 a.m. on Monday and it's all included with this particular item. As a review for any of uh, our citizens that are in uh, the room this evening and for planning commissioners, planning staff, and the commission always look at the golden factors when reviewing, reviewing any rezoning application. Those golden factors are outlined in detail uh, in the staff report. We look at the conformance with the comprehensive plan, the zoning, um, and the uses of property nearby. Any plans or area for the neighborhood or sector plans that are that are adopted for the area, uh, or any uh, adjoining properties, the suitability of the subject property for the uses to which it is currently restricted, the length of time the subject property has remained vacant as it is zoned currently, the extent to which approving the rezoning would detrimentally affect nearby properties and the gain, if any, to the public health, safety, and welfare due to the denial of the application as compared to the hardship imposed upon the landowner um, as a result of that denial. And then this is a little bit about the community mental health vicinity. It is defined in section 20, 1770. It's a facility containing space for care and programs specializing in services for individuals seeking mental health services for themselves or their families. It may contain space for waiting rooms, patient rooms, and accommodations for licensed healthcare providers providing case management services. And it may provide care service for individuals seeking mental health services either on an inpatient or outpatient basis, or both, and may include care services under medical supervision for more than 24, hour cons 24 consecutive hours. But it shall not include uh, services such as surgery and obstetrical care um, that would be uh, found in a hospital. The community mental health facility um, shall not include hospitals specifically in the definition. It shall not include group homes. It shall not include extended care facilities or temporary shelters as defined in the land development code. So just to make clear, those are actually defined separate uses. Um, and this umbrella for a community mental health facility does not include those uses. And again, this use for the community mental health facility is only permitted in the GPI zoning district. And so I tried to pull this slide on. There's a lot of uses here listed in there, probably easier read through the staff report, but I did try to put them up in case we want to discuss uses uh, specific to the GPI district versus the RSO or the current zoning designation, particularly because that RSO zoning district does permit, as I mentioned, all of the services that are being provided by this community mental health facility as a standalone basis, except for that in patient care. And really the only other uh, zoning district that does accept in-person care or permit that as a use would be the H district, which is the hospital district. And so again, that's another special purpose use district similar to this GPI district with a far more narrower focus than even this GPI uh, district has. There are some special requirements for GPI zoning designations. Uh, they are intended to accommodate institutional uses and they offer that institution maximum flexibility for patterns of uses with the district 
while ensuring those edges of that district are compatible with adjoining land uses. So this is a district that is envisioned to possibly be in a multitude of different surrounding zoning designations, be it residential, commercial, industrial. And so the GPI specific requirements have flexible uh, standards and dimensions that help buffer uh, depending on which zoning districts are in its vicinity or, or land uses that are in its, uh, along its edges. The principal uses are those that are institutional by definition and that are allowed in the GPI district in accordance with the use table in Article 4. That any accessory uses and structures are permitted by right in connection. Uh, we won't be talking about accessory structures tonight because there are no accessory structures proposed with this particular application or rezoning. Uh, density and dimensional standards for the uh, uh, district's density and dimensional standards from uh, Article 6 would apply to this district. Uh, any intended, uh, is it intended to be implemented along a collector and or arterial streets, um, which is a requirement for GPI districts? And then the institution shall provide an institutional development plan and for properties less than 10 acres, that takes the form of an administrative site plan as outlined in uh, Article 13. And then any expansions of a DP GPI district should occur in logical increments. That criteria, again, is not addressed this evening because this um, is a very unique uh, GPI district des designation. And it's a lot in and of itself and not a larger uh, in acreage GPI district. After the analysis in the staff report, staff is recommending approval of the rezoning from the RSO uh, district to the GPI district and forwarding that request on this to the city commission with a recommendation for approval. If you need me to pull up any slides um, to discuss, uh, I can pull up the rezoning review or any other uh, slides with, if you have questions. All right, Catherine, thank you. Um, the applicant, Chris Cunningham, is Chris? I'm Connor Trainer uh, of CT Design and Development. And Hi there, Connor. Hi. You got 10 minutes if you'd like. Okay, well, thank you, Catherine. Thank all of you for your time tonight. Uh, that was an outstanding um, report. I don't have much to add to it. I'm here to answer any questions. Um, Patrick Schmitz, uh, CEO of Burt Nash, is here as well. If there are any questions about the eventual facility there. Um, but I think uh, pretty much everything's been covered, but whatever questions you have, we're happy to Very answer. Very good. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Um, we'll come back to you on questions um, okay. when we get to that point. Thank you. Um, uh, there's nothing else there. Uh, any general public comment? Is anyone here from the public uh, to speak on this matter? Anyone on Zoom? See anybody out there, Drew? I do not see anyone. All right. I don't think there's anybody here. So we'll bring it back to the commission. Um, who'd like to start? Any questions, comments? I have a question. Yes. But that's a surprise. <laughs> um, can you tell, Catherine, can you tell, give me a definition of institutional? I looked all through the code. I can't find it. 
So we have a use definition for institutional use in 2017-69. Um, however, that is a use-specific definition. Uh, for the institution, as in, an, in and of itself, we do not have a definition in 2017-01 or in the subdivision regulations for institution. So the general definition for an institution would apply. And the general definition for institution is uh, an entity, be it religious, educational, or community-based, uh, could be governmental. Um, those, those are the definitions of uh, institution, if that helps. It, it does help. Thank you. So in this case, um, Burt Nash is considered an institution, not a general public. Whatever. So in this case, uh, Burt Nash is an institution by definition, but its use classification is community mental health facility. Right. It is not an institutional use classification, which is specific to governmental um, entities or institutions, whereas community mental health facility could be a governmental or public institution. And that GPI zoning designation is geared for both governmental institutions and public institutions so either one can fit under the GPI Thank designation. You. Mm -hmm. Oh no my, the only comments I had I guess was that I I do intend to support this request uh, multiple reasons one is since LMH had service there for several years <clears throat> they moved their service to uh, to their um, building on West Campus, and that building has remained vacant since then. Um, you know, I drive there almost every day when I take my kids to school, and I see the building just empty since then. And also seeing Bernash now trying to bring something as wonderful as as a mental facility facility for adolescents and and kids. It's it really it really makes me feel happy. For the community just because you know we all over here you know when we were kids we were just in a different society and on on today's you know i i see my children's struggling sometimes and and you know i try to compare and then i see well i wish you had what i had when i was a kid and time changes and and i'm, I'm happy to see something like this coming into our community so i for those reasons i intend i intend to support it thank you so much Thank you, Pedro. Other comments, discussion? <clears throat> yeah, please. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll start by, by saying that I intend to support this application. Uh, just as a general comment, when we're reviewing zoning changes, I'd I spend a lot of time with that uh, comparison table showing what's allowed in the new zoning as compared to the, the previous zoning. And because we're considering not just the proposed use that uh, the applicant is considering, but we also have to think about how this property could be used in the future uh, within the GPI district. And I, I guess thinking through that, there are additional uses obviously available in the GPI zoning. Uh, and I'm I have some comfort knowing, I, I guess, the limited size of the lot here that uh, moving forward, if for whatever reason the Burt Nash project didn't work out there, there would be a limited scope of additional types of projects that could go in there that could be potentially disruptive to the neighborhood. It goes with the land. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you for that. I have a, a question, um, I guess two questions actually, uh, one for Catherine, and I'll come back to you for just a minute, I want to click in. Um, Catherine, we have two letters um, in, uh, from uh, uh, feedback from the community uh, where they cite that um, our, our rules say that an SUP would be required for the particular use that uh, is planned here. I think partic in particular they said um, overnight stays was the thing that triggered that. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so actually I think the letter, if I'm not mistaken, referenced extended care, and that's actually a different use classification. Um, it's more like a nursing home as based on the definition. This is more uh, short-term inpatient care. It may be um, three to five days as specified in the application or the description by the applicant. So this is more inpatient medical supervised care, um, not extended living and assisted care over an extended period of time. So I think the difference is short-term versus the actual use classification for extended care, um, which this does not fit. Okay, thank you for that. And uh, for Bert Nash, um, I'd, I'd appreciate understanding a little bit more if you could describe the nature of those um, overnight stays. What what should the neighborhood expect? Sure, thank you, uh, um, Patrick. Is, is sorry, that, you finish. That, that day to day, week to week right. environment going to be like? For right. You? Thank you for the opportunity to uh, give you a little more context about what we intend to do with that building. So, as as Catherine has said, currently many of the services that would be allowed in the RSO are what we currently do in our community, the community health facility across from LMH, uh, outpatient therapy, case management, community-based services, psychiatry. Uh, we don't have an intensive outpatient, but we would add that, but we could do that without changing it. It's the one element that does not exist for youth in our community, and that is a crisis stabilization, crisis intervention center, much like we have with the Treatment and Recovery Center of Douglas County. Now, anybody can walk in the front door, whether you're two years old or 102 years old, you can go in, get served, but once it's determined you need an overnight stay or an extended stay, we have to either send them over to LMH um, or we have to send them outside of the community. So right now, we have an inequity for kids, uh, ch children and adolescents, in order to get a, uh, an extended uh, period of time for stabilization, crisis intervention, um, that right, again, right now they have to go to Topeka uh, Kansas City, uh, Wichita, uh, Emporia, they have to go a long ways away, which disrupts the family connection and involvement in their care. And so that's the one additional component, uh, as well as the intensive outpatient that we'd add to it. So this is a three-level building. The lower level uh, would be our community-based services and probably some other uh, type services. The main level, uh, which is currently uh, is clinic space, we would use that for clinic space, for, for therapy therapy, psychiatry, that in and out kind of thing. And then on the third level was where we would uh, put a six to eight bed uh, unit for that crisis intervention, crisis stabilization, respite care, I think is how it's called, three to five days, very much like what's going on at the treatment recovery center. And then in another part, an intensive outpatient program for kids who are experiencing severe anxiety, depression, substance use uh, challenges. Right now, most of those kids who are experiencing that 
also have to go drive in two, three, four days a week into the Kansas City metro area to get that level of care. So what we're trying to create is a new level of care available in our community. Mr. Chair, I believe we're ready to continue. And on behalf of all of that, I'm so sorry about the abrupt to move and hopefully that wasn't too bad, but I believe we're ready to run. Awesome, there's Catherine, right on. All right, so for those at home, we um, had a power outage in uh, our, our previous location. We've moved across the parking lot to another building, and we've resumed. We're in the middle of item three, which is a re uh, rezoning um, request. And uh, if I remember right, I had uh, just asked a question um, of Bert Nash um, about the the nature of overnight activity. I was just getting to a, just a finer point on that. And that's what, the, what should the neighbors around experience in terms of the volume of traffic and, and things at night? Uh, at night, it should be fairly limited. Uh, not too many kids will come in in the middle of the night. Be pretty rare. But it's overnight stays. It's though. overnight stays so that we can give them more than a couple of hours of care to right. help them have a greater opportunity to stabilize their crisis yeah. situation and to help the family uh, during that time as well. So during the day, the volume we very much probably like what they experienced when LMH uh, was in that facility in terms of outpatient care coming, going in, hour two, leaving, and and. Um, so that part will feel very normal and regular. Again, given that it's a six to eight bed unit, we haven't really decided the number. Uh, it's not going to be like the treatment or recovery center that can, um, uh, at some point when we, we expand that, up to 32 individuals at any one time. So this is a much smaller unit, uh, which we think is a, exactly what our community needs. Uh, there is a, a facility being built uh, over in Topeka. That's about 24 uh, beds. And then it was recently announced that in the Kansas City area, there's going to be quite a bit of development on uh, children, adult, uh, inpatient and, and extended, not extended care, but overnight care. So three to five to seven days. So we think six to eight is what our community needs to, to be the sweet gotcha. So the volume is not going to be huge. Gotcha. Thank you. Yes. Other comments, questions? Here, one question. Yes. Given that it's a residential, your neighbors are houses, um, is there any concern with public safety at all? Is there any any reason to you know, be concerned about any? any not in our estimation, no, there is not. Again, these kids uh, and adolescents uh, will be uh, inside the facility. They'll be staffed. Uh, they won't leave this facility without staff or parents. Um, so they, this public safety is no greater than probably what exists in that area right now. Okay. Thank you. Other <clears throat> questions, any other comments? Not an entertain a motion. Somebody with the I move that we approve the request to rezone Z-23-00239, approximately 0.98 acres from RSO, single dwelling residential dash office district to GPI general public and institutional use district located at 3500 Clinton Place based on the findings outlined in the staff report and forward to the city commission with a recommendation of a fruit. Second. Let's take it. Thank you. Discussion? Those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? And that passes.
Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank for you. hanging with us in our Sounds exciting like evening. Thank you. It was unanimous. All right. We move on to item four. Consider an SUP for healthcare office healthcare clinic use at 1910 Haskell. And Ellie is back up for us. Hi, Ellie. Can you walk us through this item, please? Yes. Uh, Ellie Mullins, Planning and Development Services. Get my presentation up here. Okay, so the special use application before you is a request to allow a healthcare office, healthcare clinic use at 1910 Haskell Avenue. Uh, an existing opioid treatment center operates at the subject site and the applicant would like to expand services to include, um, expand to include services provided by a physician. Current operations allow individuals to take medication on site to assist in opioid addiction recovery. The expanded use would allow physicians to prescribe medication that patients may obtain at a pharmacy of their choice. The center includes additional addiction recovery services rendered in less than three hours that would fall under the healthcare office healthcare clinic use. The subject site is located near the intersection of Haskell Avenue and 19th Street and contains an existing multi-tenant shopping center. Um, the subject suite um, that we're looking at is um, kind of right where that orange dot is. The property is zoned CN2 or neighborhood commercial. Um, healthcare office and healthcare clinic uses are permitted in the CN2 district with the approval of a special use permit. The proposed uh, expanded use does not propose any physical expansion or alteration to the existing development and will remain in suite nine. Special use permits require the Planning Commission to review um, and make a re recommendation of the request in accordance um, with the review and decision-making criteria provided in the staff report. Uh, the City Commission is the final decision-making body, and the Planning Commission may recommend that the City approve, approve with conditions, or deny the special use permit application. Based on the analysis and findings presented in the staff report, uh, staff is of the opinion that the proposed special use would be compatible with the existing land uses in the area and would be an appropriate use for the site. Uh, surrounding uses are of similar or greater intensity uh, based on the characteristics such as hours, days of operation and external impacts. Uh, this use um, without the physician services component has operated at the site since 2014. Um, the specific um, company that's um, that will be carrying out um, this use uh, has been in operation since 2021 um, at that site. Additionally, the application included a parking count um, that showed that there are more than the required a number of spaces on the subject property. Uh, the addition of employees does trigger the requirement to add long-term bike parking, um, which has been included as a condition of approval uh, with this application. While there is a specific user, user intended with this application, the approval would allow a healthcare clinic office, healthcare clinic uses in general to be permitted at the site. Um, however, no time limits or operational care, uh, conditions are recommended as similar intensity medical and other uses are permitted by right in this district. Uh, the full findings of fact can be found in the staff report within your packet. 
Um, and based on those findings, staff recommends approval of the proposed special use application uh, and forwarding to the City Commission a recommendation of approval for the healthcare office healthcare clinic use at 1910 Haskell Avenue, uh, subject to the provision of secured long term bicycle parking. Uh, with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions. All right, Ellie, thank you very much. And do, do we have Myra with us today as the applicant? Myra Hello. Campbell? Yes, hi, how are you? Hi there. You have 10 minutes if you'd like to add anything. I don't really have anything more to add unless there's any questions. Um, I think Ellie covered everything. We're already a substance abuse treatment center and we're just looking to expand our services. Myra, thank you so much. We might come back to you. Okay. Appreciate it. Is there any uh, anyone on the phone or in the room here to comment on this item? <laughs> you don't see anybody, Drew? Nope. All right, back to the commission. Um, discussion. Any comments, questions, concerns? I'll ask the question uh, for you, Myra. Um, I'm uh, I'm curious when you add uh, when you expand the services. I understand that uh, the, that's adding a position. Is that correct? That's the nature of the addition. It adds additional services to that. There's already a physician on staff. However, this would allow the patients to have an alternative method of receiving their medication. Um, so instead of them dosing at the clinic, it would make or allow the flexibility for them to receive a prescription, fill it at the pharmacy of their choice, um, you know, allowing, again, the flexibility to receive the treatment that they need in a way that's um, specific to them and their needs. Do you anticipate that the, the traffic in and around your facility is going to increase, going to change? We do not anticipate for it to increase significantly. No, we don't. Provides options. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Questions, discussion? Entertain a motion? I got the computer. <laughs> I will move that we approve the special use permit, SUP-23. Dash zero zero two three one for a healthcare office, healthcare clinic use located at nineteen ten Haskell Avenue, and forward to the city commission with a recommendation of approval based on the findings presented in the staff report and subject to the provision of secured long term bicycle parking. For a second, sure. discussion. Favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Unanimous. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. Ellie. Appreciate you. Thank you, Mr. Campo. Thank you right. very much. You bet. You bet. All right. On to item last. Um, this is a text amendment um, to Chapter 20 of the City of Lawrence um, Code to modify the standards pertaining to provisions of two detached dwellings on one lot. We've had some other conversations tangential to this kind of thing tonight. It'll be interesting. Um, and uh, Mary Miller is uh, the uh, planner behind this. Mary, could you walk us through it, please? Sure, well, Mary Miller, planner, and I'll be sharing my screen. 
So as you mentioned, this is a tax amendment related to affordable housing. It was initiated by the city commission. Um, a earlier tax amendment was approved in 2019 uh, to section 20-508 of the development code. And this was to allow two, two detached dwellings on one lot in the RS or single dwelling district. And there were specific criteria established for when that was possible. Both dwellings had to be designated as permanently affordable. Parking had to be provided by code. That way they weren't creating a parking issue um, in the neighborhood. Each dwelling had to have separate utilities and services. Non-conforming lots were excluded, whether they were non-conforming due to area or due to lot width or lot frontage, it was not possible to get variances. The development was prohibited on those non-conforming lots. And any lot in the RS5 district had to have special use permit approval. And uh, they were being very cautious when they initiated this amendment and began this new development type uh, to ensure that they didn't create an unexpected um, impact on the neighborhood. And um, the lots in RS5 had to have our SUP approval because the assumption was most of those lots would be smaller. They'd have less than 7,000 square feet. And a non-conforming lot is one that was developed in accordance with the regulations in place at the time, but that no longer comply due to a change in the code. And so uh, you could be non-conforming due to area, due to the lot width, or due to the lot frontage. This is a graphic from page two of the staff report. This is part of that table showing how the lot dimensional requirements changed with every update to the development code. Um, the code was adopted originally in 1927 and 5,000 square foot was the minimum lot area. There was no minimum width. That was updated in 1949 to require a minimum of 6,000 square foot lot area and a minimum width of 50. So anything that was developed prior to that, that was built under the regulations in place at the time and built to the minimum standards, then would be non-conforming. And in 1966, the code was revised again, and the lot area was again revised to 7,000 and 10,000, and the width to 60 and 70. And so more lots were made non-conforming. In 2006, the development code was revised again. The RS5 district was created, which had that 5,000 square foot lot area and 40 foot width. So many of the RS5 or many of the very early lots would be conforming if they had converted to that RS5 zoning. Um, but we have a lot of lots that were developed prior to 1966, which is where most infill happens is in the older neighborhoods that are non-conforming. Um, due to these lot requirements, either the area or the minimum width. Uh, in addition, properties outside the city limits could be platted and zoned prior to 1966. They were platted and developed, I mean. Zoning was adopted in the unincorporated area in 1966. So anything platted prior to that and that's annexed could very likely be non-conforming as there were no standards in place at the time for the lot size. The development code has provisions specifically for non-conforming lots. It notes that they can be used and continue to be used for uses which are permitted in the district. You're not allowed to reduce the size of a non-conforming lot. And setback provisions um, are provided to accommodate the development. You can get very small waivers or variances. Um, they have calculations which kind of have exceptions to the setback requirements. Um, they're relatively small. If that wasn't enough, you would have to go seek a variance from the setback requirements if you were unable to develop your lot. 
And the last criteria I have here is what I think is the most important, uh, that development shall comply with the building and impervious surface coverage standards of the district. Prior to 2006, there were no maximum building coverage or maximum impervious surface requirements. In 2006, they were established, and as you can see in RS5, you can develop with buildings up to 50% of your property. 50% has to remain unbuilt. You can have up to 75% impervious, which would be the buildings plus any pavement. And this ensured that we had open space and areas between buildings. And um, with the non-conforming lot requirement, it requires that when you develop a non-conforming lot, you maintain this proportion of open space to building space, even if you have a smaller lot. And that helps maintain the character of the area. So, um, to be non-conforming per area, you just have to have less square foot than is required in that district. Um, in the RS5 district, there are 157 lots with less than 5,000 square feet. And in the uh, attachment that have the summary of the GIS data, there was a link to the actual GIS spreadsheet. Um, many of the very small lots in RS5 are, are tracks or remnant parcels that just couldn't be developed anyway. But some of these could be. Um, these are currently prohibited as they're non-conforming. The proposal is to have them be allowed with a special use permit, since that's discretionary and it would be approved only if it was found that the development would be compatible with the character of the area and nearby land uses. In RS7, we have 317 lots that are less than 7,000 square feet. Today, those are prohibited from developing with two detached affordable dwellings. Um, our proposal would be to again have that SUP process so that they could be evaluated and if appropriate, they could develop. In the RS10, there's 103 lots with less than 10,000 square feet. And in RS20, there's less than, there's 12 lots with less than 20,000. And our change would allow these to be developed with a building permit as they have more than 7,000 square feet. Our proposal is if you have 7,000 square feet or less, you would have to uh, develop with a special use permit um, because that would be the size of a lot you would assume would be in the RS5 district between 5,000 and 7,000. Um, this is a graphic showing the breakdown of the lots in the RS5 district. As I mentioned, we have 157 with less than 5,000 square feet. We have 2,341 between 5,000 and 7,000. Uh, these currently require a special use permit and they would require a special use permit with the proposed changes. We have 1,111 that have more than 7,000 square feet. And as you can see below, there's 619 um, that have between 7,000 and 2,000 would qualify for RS7 zoning and 492 that have between 10,000 and 20,000 or would qualify for that RS10 or RS20 zoning. And we're recommending that those that have greater than 7,000 square feet be permitted to develop with two permanently affordable detached dwellings just with approval of a building permit. In the RS7 district, there are 317 non-conforming lots. I think I mentioned that earlier. And those are currently prohibited. Um, with this change, they would be allowed the special use permit. And then all the lots that are over 7,000 would just require the building permit as they do today. And then in the RS10 and the RS20, those would be 115 lots total would just require the building permit. We, the city commission, when they initiated the tax amendment, it was um, with a discussion with tenants to homeowners. They are the group that traditionally has been building these um, 
two detached dwellings uh, working on most of the projects. And they indicated that uh, the way the language is written now, they're having difficulty finding lots. So the city commission initiated the amendment um, with direction to try way, find a way to make it more flexible. So that's what our goal was. We also didn't want to go too far since our development code is being rewritten right now. We were trying to do something that would just be an interim provision. And then the new development code might make further changes with more review. Um, however, tenants to homeowners, they looked over our changes and they thought they were satisfactory. However, they suggested that rather than using 7,000 square feet, which is the cutoff of the RS7 district, that we go down to 6,000 square feet. And they reasoned that is um, we have an RS3 district, which requires 3,000 square foot per dwelling. So then their thought would be that 6,000 square feet would be the minimum that we would see suitable for two dwellings. And um, there are 1,252 lots between 6,000 and 7,000 in RS5 now that require SUP. Um, with the changes they're proposing, that would just take a building permit. And there's 252 uh, with this size in RS7 uh, prohibited now um, would require uh, just a building permit under their changes. So that'd be a total of 1,504 that would go from requiring a special use permit to a building permit if this change was made. And I just wanted to mention that as I think they're here today and might want to discuss their proposal. I kind of wanted to give some background to that. So I'm going to go through the changes that we are recommending. And we have a couple of housekeeping changes, and this is one of them. This is start of section 20-508 is an introductory paragraph, but that last sentence um, notices that you can have two detached dwellings when they're both permanently affordable. That only applies to RS zoning. And in this section, we discuss there's a section one that relates to RM or multi-dwelling zoning. And then the next two sections talk about RS. So it's very confusing to have this requirement in the introductory, which would apply to all zonings. So we're recommending we strike this sentence. It is included later in the RS7 district, but it would just clarify the language quite a bit to remove that. So um, section two today only applies to RS7, RS10, and RS20 districts. Section three is exactly the same, except it is specifically for RS5, and it includes a requirement that they have a special use permit. All the other standards are the same. So since we're recommending we require the special use permit with the lot size rather than with the zoning district, we're recommending that we delete section three and just include RS5 with all these standards. And so that's the changes you can see where we're including the RS5 language in this portion. And um, it still has that requirement that you can have two detached dwellings as long as a they are being permanently restricted to be affordable dwelling units. You can have no more than two detached dwellings. And um, the one section that says all standards of Article 6 shall apply, that's being deleted, um, proposed to be deleted. Uh, that's one of the reasons you aren't able to develop a lot that has less than required frontage, because this says it shall apply. You're not able to uh, develop if it's non-conforming. Uh, we are recommending leaving the minimum lot area, because that is the one that says you have to have 7,000 square foot per dwelling unit, and this section would not comply with that because you would allow two dwelling units for that area. All standards of Article 9, that's the parking chapter, would apply. Um, we have this one is the one that says um, 
standard five, that lots that are non-conforming as to area are not eligible. We would recommend changing that instead to the development of non-conforming lots is subject to the standards of section 20-1504. And that would have those minor revisions that are possible to the setbacks, but also more importantly, it would require that they comply with the minimum um, building or the maximum building coverage and the maximum impervious surface coverage. Variances are not possible from those, and that way they would maintain the character of the area. And then uh, the biggest change is number six, development of two permanently affordable detached dwellings on lots with less than 7,000 square feet is permitted only with approval of a special use permit. And so we're replacing the RS5 district with just any lot that has less than 7,000 square feet, regardless of the zoning district. We're not recommending any changes to these next three standards. Uh, they have to have separate utility services. Each detached dwelling has to have direct legal access to a public right-of-way. And then prior to the issuance of a building permit, um, there has to be an agreement between the city and the owner to maintain the detached dwellings as permanently affordable dwelling units. And we do have affidavits drawn up um, that are executed and recorded with kind of projects. Um, as I mentioned, we're recommending deleting section three. That's where we had special standards just for the RS5 district because we're recommending looking at the lot size rather than the zoning district. Zoning district. And the final housekeeping change we're recommending is um, in section 20-202, there's just a code citation that's incorrect. It's referring to section 20-508, but it lists it at 20-513. So we're just recommending that, that minor change we made while we're doing this amendment. Um, these are the two criteria that need to be met when you're doing a tax amendment, and these are discussed in the staff report. And staff's opinion, these are met. And so staff's recommendation is to forward this tax amendment of uh, revising the standards for two permanently affordable detached dwellings to the city commission with a recommendation for approval. And that concludes my presentation. I'll be happy to answer questions if you have any for me. Mary, thank you. I'm sure we will. Sure, we will. Um, I want to open things up for, uh, we're, there's no developer on this, so I'll open things up for public comment. Is there anybody in the room or? <laughs> I guess that's me. We don't have a shot clock here, but three minutes-ish would be great. Okay. Rebecca Buford with Tenants to Homeowners. Um, we bring this before you, I, not to change intent, but truly we, when we passed this ordinance and the planning commission had great discussion about, you know, we don't want tiny lots to be, have way too much going on. And I agree, we don't want to either. Um, but what we're talking about, so we went and bought four RS7 lots because we believed that was by right. We didn't read the fine print bad on us that if there was any non-conforming issues, we couldn't. So we have these lots that we've used grant funds to buy. And we also just heard we got 750,000 to build these little houses from the state. So these are three quarters of a million dollars in resources that we can build this right now. Um, but well, two of the lots are um, 30, I'm sorry, 6,200 square feet. So in that six to 7,000, even though there are a seven, hmm. my, my the one that we've built on mary said send me all the pictures of all the projects you've done there's only been one because of this difficulty with non-conforming lots 
partly, which I don't, you know, I don't think is against the intention that the planning committee and the ordinance had of if we're building 500 square foot houses, let's do a little cottage in two lots and we have four little houses and that is perfectly fits neighborhoods. We have examples of these being built all over that existed before code. Um, and most of the neighborhoods we're building these in, it is not, it's not next to a giant million dollar house. They, they fit well within the scope. Um, the need for affordable housing is mostly one and two person households. That's the demographics, you know. So building giant houses does not make sense for affordability. We don't make money on these. We barely can do this without 750,000 in grant funding. So what we lose if we can't have an amendment is being able to build, you know, four more houses. I mean, I know that seems small, but in this moment of crisis and supply, that's huge for those four people, those four households. Absolutely huge. Tenants to homeowners always builds high quality. The one unit we've built on these lots that we want to do with 6,000, that we only require 6,000 square feet. What Mary suggested, my suggestion to the amendment is, would allow us to build four houses on those two lots that are not quite 7,000 square feet. I am fine with SUP under 6,000, no matter what. So this is really just six to 7,000, which again, she nicely showed there are several hundred lots like that in neighborhoods where this works really well for small housing um, and fits with the character of the neighborhood. Um, our houses that we're building now in this, our, our goals are 500 square foot houses. So 500 on, uh, or yeah, on that is 16%. So we really need to keep in mind that if we're building smaller houses, two little houses. The other thing, if we're building housing for houseless or other affordable, and I'm not saying that only would be, but that's an issue in our community, a significant issue that um, having that community, having two or three houses is not concentration, which I absolutely heard you say we do not want. This allows us to scatter site that kind of housing. And this is exactly what we're trying to do. Four little houses in a neighborhood does not create a concentration of poverty um, or a concentration of rental housing. It just doesn't. And so this allows us to do that at the price point that is required. I could not buy other lots. I bought these right after we passed that two and a half years ago. Lot costs have gone up by 20000 since then. Yeah. So it really, you know, when we talk about financial hardship, it's a financial hardship for the outcome of affordable housing and for those families that we're creating those units for. So in this moment, and the 750,000 I would have to give back if I couldn't build on those lots, which just seems like an absolute shame when we're saying our number one priority in this community is affordable housing. And I've said to commissions and I mean, when I can't build these, I'm gonna be clear to the public about why it's been hard. It's some of this bureaucracy here that, you know, so I, I really, I think we got to do the right thing here when it, it's reasonable. We're at time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Anyone else on public comment? Mm -hmm. I don't see anybody unmuting. All right, so I'll bring this back to the commission. Um, I'd like to start by um, pointing out that what we're being asked to do tonight is reflected well in this, this one use case where there's four lots that are going on, but we're being asked to write a text amendment to change code, not just to serve this. There's probably other vehicles, other ways to get at that. So this is a larger conversation. I um, want to help have us keep that in mind as well. Um, and this was uh, sent to us by um, the uh, city commission for the request for us to consider this. So with that, um, we'd like to start. I'll go yeah, ahead just please. because uh, Commissioner Carter and I were um, on the commission when this initial text amendment went through or the initial uh, proposal for the two uh, two houses on the, on the lot. And I was very supportive of that issue. But I remember the big pushback uh, from some people were uh, what the big pushback was um, that somehow this was going to concentrate because most of these lots were in um, east side neighborhoods. Um, and one of the things that was argued very well, I thought that having these two uh, smaller houses on a lot would allow affordable housing to be spread across the community. And this itself, this particular text amendment continues that process of allowing it. I'm just stunned at how many non-conforming lots there are out there. I had no idea. So, so right. So, if one of the initial pushbacks against this this whole process was that it was going to concentrate somehow um, these uh, low low income housing in certain neighborhoods, but this allows it to even to spread out even more throughout the community, which is I think what we're all looking for. Um, so, I'm very supportive uh, of this. But if you need any more background, thank you. Mike. Thank you. Other comments? Yes. I just want a point of clarity. So what we're talking about, though, is is the seven thousand. Or I mean, there's obviously it can be a discussion to have it to amend that or whatever. But at the moment, what staff is proposed is the seven. Assess Mary. Yeah, staff is recommending that we use seven thousand as a cutoff. Below that, it would take a special use permit. So. The other parcels that are like or lots that are six thousand, it may be possible to develop them. You just have to go through that special use permit process. You can also consider the six thousand. That's in your purview today as well. If you decided you wanted to make that the recommendation, but staff is recommending the seven thousand. When staff was making the recommendation, like um, I'm assuming that you also looked at the six thousand and decided on the seven. Is there um, any? reason or like the rationale for a white seven over the six when you compared the two? Yeah, I was staying with the RS7. I was keeping as close to the original as possible. And the cutoff was the RS5 district, which when you think of it, you would assume it goes up to 7,000 square feet. And at that point, you go into the RS7 district. So by changing it, we're catching all those lots that are larger in RS5 than they need to be and allowing them without the special use permit, but any lot, even an RS7, RS10, that's got less than 7,000 square feet, we're also allowing it with a special use permit. So I think we're loosening it up quite a bit, but since this is just interim until the development code gets adopted, I didn't feel comfortable going to 6,000. I understand the reasoning that uh, RS3 is probably the very smallest lot we allow, 
but I just thought the RS7 was a better, a reason, a better reasonable place to make the division. Thank you. There's a thousand-ish houses in the above 7,000 foot range. Is that right, Mary? Lots. Lots, thank you. Thank you. And in that single band of 6,000 to 7,000, there's over 1,200. Wow, what a larger than any annexation we've considered. It's true, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Number of homes this puts into, into potentially puts into play. Mary, did, yeah, please. Mary, did you consider uh, a new zoning district rather than a special use permit? No, we want, I didn't want to go that far, you know, because our new code is going to create completely different zoning districts and to require a person to rezone in order to do this. It, it's almost the same as a special use permit. The process is nearly the same, but sometimes you look at spot zoning and if you're in the RS5 district and we're going to rezone one to RS7 or RS10, just because it's that large of a lot, it may be difficult um, to make that one zoning of one lot where a special use permit, you can do that. You can scatter that, those throughout. What I was thinking about is um, the input that and notice that neighbors have for the special use permit. Do neighbors have both notice and any opportunity to protest? Yes, the process is exactly the same as rezoning. They get the mailed notice, the notice is posted, uh, the legal is published in the paper, um, the planning commission has a public hearing, and then there is that protest petition that applies to both zonings and special use permits. That, so that's a 400 foot uh, notice area? Yes. The protest area is a 200 foot area, but the notice is sent to 400 feet. Yeah. And if there's a protest, then the city commission has to have a supervision. Yes, that's right. If I could ask a question, does somebody else want to go? I want to ask a, a, a line of questions if I can to try to get an understanding about affordable dwellings, permanently affordable, um, and how those restrictions are maintained over time. Um, I you know, look in the land development code, I think it was section 20-1701 that gave a definition or actually three different definitions of what affordable dwelling might be. Um, one was based on what HUD said. One was based on um, a percentage of income, I believe, and I'm, I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head what the third was, but I'm curious when we say this this is only going to be allowed where we say it's going to be a permanent affordable dwelling and that that will somehow be reported in the deed. But how do we define what affordable is in a way that it can sit in a deed and be transferable from one property owner to another? This is Randy Larkin, That's Randy Larkin Deputy City Attorney. We enter into agreements with the owners of the property when they do that. They put a covenant on the property. Permanently affordable is not perpetually affordable. It's 99 years typically. And then at that point in time, it, it goes back into you know regular processes. 
and then it's put on the deed and we adopt whatever the current definition of affordable housing is, is in the city code. And if that goes away, then that goes away. So that's that's how those are handled going forward in the future. So can you, can you just walk us through an example of what that would look like if we're gonna do it today? It's just, and let's, say, let's pretend that uh, someone's gonna build this and they're going to rent it. Um, does that then fix rent at a certain amount? No, it just has to be affordable under the city code, it has to meet the definitions of affordable. Uh, how do I translate though into reality? I, let's say let's say I've got a house and I, 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 I'm going to build a second detached uh, dwelling. I'm going to rent that detached dwelling. Or is that even, is that is that allowed? Under no, that would not be allowed. You both 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 you houses only both sell properties it. would have to be both properties both houses both structures would have to be affordable. All right. Go back to the and 500 square foot houses that are being built. Use that as yeah, the same. Yeah. Um, well, if you're going to build two there, I guess I guess maybe where I'm stuck is I've got one already and I want to build a second one, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> does that condition apply, though? If I've got one, I want to build a second, or does that become an ADU? And um, typically, Jeff can perhaps answer that, but it's typically an ADU. You know, we have an example of that. Do you remember the smart density on Hopper subdivision that went through just a few months ago? And it was especially for this kind of project. It came right, with, right. do you remember that? Yes. And so that was an existing structure. And so tenants to homeowners is going to make that permanently affordable. So if you had an existing structure and you weren't going to live in it and you're going to designate it as permanently affordable, then you could build another one. All right. But they, have to be permanently affordable and the definition of affordable gives you the limits for if it's rental you it says monthly rent utilities not exceeding 110 percent of hud fair market rent as determined yearly by the douglas county housing authority and then it has a different requirement for owner occupied so we would go by that definition in the code right. key also remember with accessory dwelling units is the accessory dwelling unit is only activated if one of them is unoccupied. And so that's that is a caveat to the way that code works. So you can't rent both structures out at one point because the ADU would be nullified because it's not unoccupied. There is that differential in there. When they did the definitions for this, it was two had to be permanently affordable to activate and be eligible to even go through the process as part of that. So there was there was a little bit of a discussion back in the end about that exact that that exact dial in on that one, but it's really that owner occupancy of the ADU that was the, the differential between the two. But now they can both be rental. If as under the amendment, if you're going with this SUP if, versus the other one, if they're both permanently affordable, they would qualify for that bonus portion of it. That, that's the key with that. One. They both have to be permanently affordable. Otherwise, one of them being affordable, the other being an ADU does not qualify in the same line as, as meeting that threshold of the amendment. What happens? What, go ahead, Jean. Well, if you have these two permanently affordable houses in 2023, and then in 10 years later, they're sold, who monitors whether they are still permanently? Somebody owns the land, right? The numbers are going to be the percentages, the income. How does that work? 
Beck might be able to better answer that one in, in some respects. I know when they go through the process, they have to income qualify to be eligible for programs like for tenants to homeowners for the housing authority. And that's it's a process that's done by the agency. It's a little bit outside the development code. So there is a qualification process that has to occur as, as part of that. So it has to be through one of these nonprofits. An individual can't just do it by themselves. If they want to do it by themselves, they could, but they'd have to do some kind of income qualification to show that they're meeting the thresholds to be affordable at whatever that that affordable rate is at that point in time. And then if those numbers change and they're no longer permanently affordable, what happened? How was that dealt with? That's uh that's something we've talked about a lot on those because you know affordability can go up and down depending on the market and, and that's you know might have to look at what's either in that part that's filed with the register of deeds or also have an instance that city commission may change that definition of affordability. And so we have to review that as it comes up. There's not been a lot of these that have come on where we've had to have that look at it, but it's really been that qualification part that is kind of beyond the code in that respect. It just says that it has to be permanently affordable and you have to meet those needs on that one. And now how they, the organization, the entity income qualifies is usually left to them on that regard. So I've got a 6,200 square foot uh, lot and I want to build two um, permanently affordable and then in a period of time, they're no longer permanently affordable. But planning office then does that first review to find out if I can initially build them as permanently affordable? We do the review to say, you know, do you have the documentation that meets the land development code and have you filed the right documents at that point? That is, that is our purview and, and review on that one. It's up to the other agencies then to show that they're qualifying and meeting the conditions of that as part of what they're working through. So this is limited to um, zoning that would be through an agency rather than through just an individual wanting to do it? it? It could be open to a lot of different agencies. I know that the Housing Authority partners with other people to do those income qualifications as part of the process. The intent when the amendment was first brought up was to not have it be tailored to just specific entities, but that, you know, may need someone to do that income qualification component to it. And so that way it was open to everybody potentially there is that component. You do have to certify that they are meeting that mark to be in compliance with that restriction that's in place. Sorry. Um, and I don't know that this really is necessarily needed for this. I'm just trying to clarify my own understanding. So if I were to qualify and everything and I buy the house and everything's good, and then let's say my career takes off and all of a sudden I'm making more money than I had anticipated I would, but I'm still living in this house that I purchased that was under the affordable housing. And definitionally then it, it changes that. What, happened, what I hear you saying is that there's no one monitoring that and there, and like that, that it's maybe the organization who would review those or at some point or there is a review process, but I don't know that I'm, worked up about it at all. I'm just trying to figure out. It's like, so when something gets designated as affordable housing and someone begins begins renting or owning it, really there's no compliance after that? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I mean, that's that's the goal for somebody to get into a house and then and, and have their career take off and make the money. We're not going to monitor that to make sure 
that that person then complies in the future. It's then when it when there's a future yeah. transaction that okay. if they sell it, they're not making a profit. That they comes back as the same same amount, or if they rent it out, that they're renting it out at a below market rent or based on the deal. That's the purpose. That we want to get people, we want to get people in the houses so that they can have that success. That's so what we're looking for is is each time the housing um, the transfer of ownership or rental or whatever yes. possession. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting point, though, because it depends on which definition of affordable housing you use. If you use uh, what was eighty percent of something that was uh, where, where rent would be set, does that mean that your rent goes up as your income goes up? Oh, because it would still meet the affordable mark. Um, that would probably be between you and the landlord at that point, which is different than if you owned it forever, right? That's probably between you and the landlord. And the definition of affordable housing can change throughout, which then may change the relationship or change what happens if there's a turnover and transfer of it, of the property. Gary, you might get an answer right here, right? I do a program, which, you know, obviously other people could do different programs, but ours, in the land trust for ownership, we maintain ownership of the land and we sell it at a restricted resale price. So every buyer after the first will always be income eligible at whatever that level is based on HUD's annual release of those eligibility marks. So we will always serve permanently someone under 80% AMI when they buy the house. Now, I love your... What ends up happening, right, is people hopefully do make more money. They tend to move out of a little tiny house when they make more money. They don't have to. So, again, we don't force someone out. Rental, we redo their income verification every year with the new lease. So that is more managed because it's a rental. Ownership, if you win the lottery the next day, you can stay in that house. But when you sell it, you sell it for your purchase price plus 25% of market appreciation. 75% goes to subsidize the next buyer. It stays permanently affordable so that a teacher can buy it 10 years from now still, even though appreciation has gone like this. Our appreciation has gone like this with incomes. So that's how we monitor and manage that. Yeah. So it is totally like compliance or whatever. There's monitoring. It's just not super administrative, which is awesome. So is, is this is every single thing that would happen through this program be governed by, managed by your organization? Well, Habitat for Humanity has another way of restricting and providing permanent affordability with second mortgages and mortgages that are a lower interest. You know, I mean, any of the agencies in town that would do permanent affordability, they have different ways of doing it. And I think that's where the city just wants to define what you have to meet as far as affordability. And that we have a legal document that says we have to do that. Yeah. Sharon, you had something? I was going to ask Rebecca, but Sharon, she just answered it. Okay. So. <laughs> um, All right. But um, just to bring, bring us back to the non-conforming lot, issue um so what what we're what we're being asked to look at is uh, right now 
Um, it says that we can't, can't do this on a non-conforming lot. We've just seen that doing it on non-conforming lots um, actually opens up thousands of potential. Uh, so one of the one of the big issues when this was originally proposed back in 2019 was impervious surface in terms of density. Mm. So um, I would just I guess I have a question in terms of between the 6,000 and 7,000. Uh, one of the questions is, should this be an SUP or just a building permit? And as I understand it, Mary, um, that that kind of concern, that issue of impervious surface percentages would be dealt with regardless of whether it was an SUP or a building permit, if they were applying for a building permit and did not need to go through the SUP process, that still would be considered impervious service, correct? That's correct, right? There is no variance. You have to meet, you cannot exceed those maximum building coverage or impervious surface coverage amounts. So it'll always be proportional to the size of your lot, whether you have an SUP or building permit. I'm not trying to argue against this. I'm just, in fact, I'm, I'm super excited about what the potential is for our community. I'm, I'm just, I'm not smart enough to be able to get my head all the way around a 99-year line item on a deed and how that works with changes that might come throughout through the course of the years. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. What changes are, what changes is it that you're struggling with um, so if, uh, if, if, if these are just sold, there's a deed restriction that's on there in 50 years, who is going to confirm that the private sale from one person to another has met whatever that particular year standards are. And if the answer is standards have changed such that the lot becomes unsellable, now what? When you say that standards have changed, that it becomes the bar on what affordable is. They can't find someone that that meets the requirement of it. The costs underlying this have gone up such that it no longer is a is a viable place for someone to be. A, a, a property taxes, right? How does that factor in? As those costs go up underneath this utility rate, all, all these things that might come up underneath it that would all of a sudden, and I'm talking, you know. It's not imaginable right now, but we're talking about a hundred years, right? So, how do how do is there is there a way for a future landowner who finds themselves in an untenable position to be released from that requirement? Well, I would think that the definition right of affordable housing is going to change as those circumstances change. So, right as taxes increase and all these other things increase, then that will also be taken into account when HUD or whichever entity is now running that and defining affordable housing as they define what that year's affordable housing is. So I would think that those types of conditions we worked into the definition of, of that um, in some ways. Um, as, so as far as like no one being around to meet the definition of affordable housing, my guess is the definition will morph enough that there'll be people around. I suspect, I suspect to, so. Uh, yeah, to meet I that. suspect so. I'm just thinking as a, as a landowner, as a property owner, how do I, how do I get excited about getting into this? How do I, how do I protect myself, my future? Well, Randy my might be able to answer, um, 
with, as far as property um, is concerned, right, and like something being recorded on the deed, like how that would actually, when the transfer of property happens, like how that would be accountable, right? Like if, if you've got notations on your deed, right, legally, how that might. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Yes, that would be a covenant. It will be noted on the deed. When you purchase it, it will be, should be disclosed to you. You should be able to see that up front that when you sell this property, it's going to have to be affordable under the city code. Now, there may be come a time in the future where affordable housing is no longer something that the city is interested in. And the definition of affordable housing goes away. And then that that covenant will be removed and then it becomes something else. And, and we go forward that way. But as it is, you will purchase that without on the deed and then you'll sell that with on the deed. So it should be known by everybody that's involved in the transaction. That takes me to my last question then. And that is, let's say we get to a day 50 years from now, thousand of these um, uh, occurrences exist. There's a thousand notations on a thousand deeds. And we say, program's over. How do we undo that? They're just not effective anymore. I mean, yeah. this, that's that's within the language and the notation of the deed. There's no, well, it, it's in the, in the same way that a lot of houses in various communities had discriminatory covenants placed on their deeds, and those deeds or those covenants are still out there. You can go to the deed and still see them. It's just that it's not enforceable. It, it's not a restriction that is active. And so, to I, I think to to Randy's point, if the city no longer cares about affordable housing. That's no longer defined within the code, or it's not referenced in the same way that it is in the restriction. The restriction just has no effect. Okay. All right. Absolutely. I love that answer. I love that that's, answer. That's well stated. I do. I, I'm still confused. Rebecca, are you saying that you really hold title to all the land and the people who are living there? either, quote, have an ownership interest or uh, their tenants, and you control it. So the people who think they're, people who are owners only, owner, only own their occupancy. And they own the title to the improvements on the property. They right. own their house. They can paint it pink, and I can never walk into it. They have a 99-year ground lease for use rights to the land, which is significant, right? My rights to that are limited. So, but it, that 99-year lease allows us to restrict the resale and steward each of the resales so that we can ensure that someone who's buying it, it's not just out there, what you guys suggested, 50 years later and no one's looking at it. We steward, we've stewarded 75 resales in our 102 houses in trust. And we bring another lower income family that's eligible at that date into the, into the housing units. We do education, we do maintenance workshops, we do stewarding support to make sure that those homeowners are successful. 91% of my resales have earned enough equity to move to the unrestricted market. So that's what we're doing. It, stepping stone into ownership and wealth building, which is critical for the people that can't get in. 
Our units also, we pay closing costs and we require a down payment of two of 5% of annual gross. So instead of 15,000 to get in, it's usually two to 3,000. And that's one huge way to give a stepping stone into ownership. But all my owners, most are college educated, most are teachers and social workers. Well, it's a wonderful program, but that means this text amendment only applies to use of land and buildings that is controlled by these nonprofit agencies. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. No, anybody could do this. If it was a private individual or a, a corporation could do this, they would just have to comply with the rules. But anybody could do it. You could do it. Okay. That's what was, was not clear to me is because it sounded like there would have to be an agency that. So absolutely. No. But, but they, right. We would enter into an agreement and we would monitor the same way we monitor the rest of the programs. Yes, Steve. I, why do I, what do I do? I have an agreement with the city. Yes. As part of, that's part of getting the approval. That's one of the requirements under the city code to get the two, two properties on a single thing is that you enter into an agreement with the city that these will be affordable for, for 99 years. And that'll be all spelled out in the agreement. And what happens if you don't, if there's non-compliance, how the transactions will occur in the future, whether you're renting it out, whether you're selling them out, those are all, that would all be covered in that agreement with the city. I have fee simple title. Yeah. And you, you could hold fee simple title, you could sell fee simple title. You could, you know, there's a number of ways of arranging that, just like Rebecca was saying, that she does it one way and Habitat for Humanity might have a slightly different program and other people could get involved and they could do it just as well as they could. And, and so if I'm understanding that correctly, because there's an agreement with the city, the city also has an enforcement right? Absolutely. That, that, that's the point of that, having that agreement. If then all of a sudden now they're using these to make profit, we come in, we get an injunction, we do whatever else we can legally to shut that type of behavior down either make those houses uninhabitable because they're no longer in compliance with the zoning code or whatever it would be that we would action that we could take against them. Both houses have to comply with the subdivision regulations. Yes, as far as I know, yes, they have to comply with the city code and the subdivision regulations. Yes, they all have to comply with that because those we have drawn it up for these two houses so that they comply with the code, so they have to comply with those provisions relating to the two affordable houses on the one lot. Yes. So the time when the plats come in, they don't know if they're going to be doing, if that may or may not be an option sometime. So when the planning goes through, it goes through just like it would normally do. So lots of 7,000 square feet, must have your setback, must have all of your, your stuff in the right dots to, to get the ministerial plat. You're dealing with a non-conforming lot, which makes it a little trickier to get a plot through. Correct. And some of these non-conforming lots go back, you know, plots from the 30s, these are the 40s, yeah. and, and so they got a long range to them there. There's a large number of plots that would, and then you all see this frequently, is they, but for a couple of things, they would meet the code at the time, but not today. And there's quite a lot of those. Uh, and you know, we've had plotting since about 1920-ish. 
somewhere in there. So, I mean, it's, we've got about 100 years of class that are out there that are just all good. There are lots of records and things like that that just don't quite muster up to the standards we have for some today. All right, great. Yes. I have a question. So now I'm just kind of trying to figure out in my head that between the six and the seven, the, yeah. the SUP and the um, other, pro the, just the building permit. So I don't know, I don't have a ton of background and I don't know if anybody has in shed any light on that um, or what other people are thinking maybe in that area. Because now that's kind of. What other conditions would be in the SUP that's not in building? Permit? Curious about that. Is that kind of long? Yeah, yeah. that's kind of. The notice and the protest. Effectively, when you're going through a special use permit, you do have the noticing procedure. You would go before the planning commission, you would go to the city commission for the ultimate approval on that one. So you'd have the 400 foot notice, 200 foot protesting area. You would have to meet the golden criteria and go through those. So it's a little bit more of a, allows for a, a review in case there's something that may or may not quite fit in the circumstance around or the context of the area around it. But that was why the, the planning commission ultimately landed on the SUP for some of those other ones was to have that, uh, Kind of review just to make sure in instance by instance it was okay but effectively if you're doing a detached dwelling or something like that there is no no site plan approval it is an automatic building permit look at the zoning criteria and you have all of your your plat and all of that work done yeah and with a special use permit you can eat you can deny it if you feel it doesn't fit you also can apply special conditions so you could actually say this is where that house can be you know maybe there's something about the property next door that where they you know certain places wouldn't be good or you can make sure that the houses are a certain size to fit the lot so you were able to like tailor the conditions to fit the specific lot so whether it's six thousand or seven thousand square feet that's one of the benefits of a special use permit you get to set conditions especially for that lot and its surrounding area it's an opportunity to gnash our teeth over all of those things lot by lot. Yeah, that was very helpful. Thank you. Actually, that helped, that helped me make my decision. So thank you. It's an opportunity to get affordable housing mixed into neighborhoods in a way that be a game changer. This is huge. It really is. It's the kind of thing that should have a comprehensive plan amendment first. I don't know about first, and when I think about the conversation we had earlier about what the comprehensive plan asks us to do, to me, this feels like it's going in that direction. It feels like it supports that maybe more substantially than anything else I've seen in a long time. Yeah, what kind of amendment would you, to me, it doesn't, it seems to fit right into what's already there. So what are you thinking, like when you think amendment well, what type of that's why I raised the question because my history is old history but typically with a brand new um, concept policy concept that's going to guide this particulars of the zoning we have made sure that that policy was clearly in the comprehensive plan and splitting lots is kind of a uh non-conforming lots is a different concept, but it's to provide affordable housing that we want to have, but it's a different approach to land development. That, that's why I was raising the question. Uh, 
I, I can think of no reason we wouldn't approve this. Now, the city is saying 7,000 square feet. Uh, it was recommended 6,000 square feet. And Mary, isn't that something you said we could do if we wanted to? Yes, you can um, alter the conditions or the standards. You could make it 6,000 if you thought that was appropriate. But 6,000 of city commissions not comfortable that they can back it up. It looks to me like um, issues are being, <clears throat> excuse me, being taken care of by the city, that they're still overseeing this, or in most cases, it is probably a nonprofit that is doing this, although like Randy said, corporations could choose to do this if they so desired, but it seems like there's still an awful lot of oversight on what is going to happen. And if it makes it easier to develop, uh, which it would, you just have to go through the building permit on a 6,000 square foot property rather than a seven, uh, it seems to me that makes it it opens it up even more. So I don't know why we wouldn't just go ahead and say 6,000 square feet rather than seven and go with this text amendment uh, that seemingly from what I've heard, there are lots of controls that are built in for the next 99 years. To just back up what um, Charlie just said is that we do have an RS3 zone yeah. now. So we allow uh, lots buildable lots of 3,000 square feet. Yeah, yeah. So, but you have two two dwellings on them. No, no. Just the fact that we would allow a lot size of 3,000 right. sort of it's just right. uh, to me. Yeah, I can make sense. Six thousand right. two yeah. lots. Yeah. So, um, and right. an example of that would be the RS3 zoning that um, was established several years ago was on um, 19th Street. If you go right by the bike path. Um, 19th and the bike path um, is an example of tenants to homeowners, um, 3,000 square foot lots, houses. So that's the minimum is 3,000. Yes. You can't go under 3,000. 3, Correct. That's right. And that's why the 6,000 square right. foot right. would fit into that plan right. to the best dwelling. Yeah. And concerns like that's why I asked a question about impervious service. That's still going to be part of because right. uh, that was one of the one of the large concerns when right. this whole thing came up. In 2019. And that's done through the building permit process anyway. And it just seems like that would simplify this process. Um, and then if there were, I'm trying to think what the special special would be that would ever have to come back to us where we would want to be that involved. If the building permit's already done on 6,000 square foot and above, then so be it. The only thing that I might think is a reason for that was what Mary described is it, it gives an opportunity for public feedback in a way that's not present in the building permit. Yeah. And it could, and we could hear something that would might say we, we understand and, and have a concern about where a building is located or something like that. And I, it, it just gets, thinking the same is true on a 7,000 square foot lot on where are those buildings going to be and what are neighbors thinking yeah. and all of those things. Anyway, what thousand foot square lots too. Yeah, yeah. 
So I, I think I am just in favor of our approving this. I'd like to see it at 6,000 square feet, but if we vote for 7,000 square feet, okay. just as long as we approve it, yeah, so that the, is great. The question I think is, so there's two questions. One is, uh, do we want to go to 6,000 as the starting place on where this takes place? Second question, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Jeff. Second question would be, if we do say 6,000, yes, do we just, if we just say nothing, it comes with an SUP, or do we need to address whether or not an SUP process is required at 6,000 feet? Very well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the section you'd be modifying would be the square footage amount in there. So just adjusting the 6,000 would just automatically just change the number from 7,000 to 6,000 and would still require the special use for anything less than 6,000 yeah. okay. So um, anything that would be 5,999 would go through special use. Okay. 6,000 and up would go on, on its on its normal route either way. So for generally in agreement, the, the, the motion then is to adopt the text amendment with a, a, uh, a change to 6,000 square feet. Is that the right way to say that? Correct. It would, it would be the notation that Barry's uh, circling there on the screen there that just <laughs> make that modification in, in six that, uh, say 6,000. 6,000. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I can't support six, but I'm happily will support staff at 7,000. Yeah, I'm still debating. Um, I'm having a hard time. Like, I, that was really helpful with the 3,000 because you can do it with three anyway. So, what's the difference between um, dividing a six um, with having just a three and a three? That makes sense to me. But I am big on public process and, and we're changing quite a bit. And it's quite a few lots, it looks like, that are affected. And we're in the middle of, of development and, and like, there's someone looking at this and going to make a much more significant overall change to this. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's kind of like, I feel like we're it's not, early. yeah, it was not necessarily our purview where I kind of, I guess, agree with Mary that this is like a reasonable um, interim why, why somebody um, is taking a deeper dive into it um, than, than we are right now. So I, I'm not uh, like hundred percent opposed to six, but this seems like a good interim thing since someone else is looking at it. That's where I am as well. I, I like seven uh, in part for opening the process up and then allowing the opportunity to uh, adjust the conditions or restrictions as these things go come up for review. How many lots are we talking about between six and 7,000? 1,252 lots are opened up between seven and six. It more than doubles the available lots from a little over a thousand to twenty two hundred. So I'm definitely in favor of setting that number at six thousand, uh, just because that's the like that's a huge yeah. thing that we can do. It's like you said, it's bigger than any annexation. I'm leaning potentially. Towards, I'm leaning towards six as that well. you've done so far. I'm leaning towards six as well, not necessarily because yes, the the the, the number of them, but what I. What I think comes along with the number of lots is the variety of different places that might be exposed. Um, like we're talking about 6,600 feet around you know, those four lots. I mean, those all, all out of the gate. Um, in fact, that's a good question. If we set it at seven, with those four lots we're talking about, are those outside of the scope of this change now? But there's the, the SUP process. Right. I mean, yeah. so there, there's me. There is an avenue for that, okay. right? It's just a more restricted avenue. 
No, so we're not making an amendment for one project. This is an amendment for the whole city and all. No, you're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I'm just thinking, though, when I think about it, not only is it doubling the, the available lots of this idea, but what does that do to the, to the footprint of this across the community? It also might open it up just, well, it made me think your comment um, there, Commissioner Eldridge, was the, that this might open it up to actually more entities that could do it. I'm talking with the 6,000 without the SUV permit. If it was, if we lowered that number to 6,000, it might open it up to other entities. So there would be a potentially a, a greater use of these lots. But where other, I, I don't know, I don't really understand the types of entities that would get into this, but it might be more attractive if it was, if it didn't require an SUV. I don't know. From back in the day, you know, not that long ago, uh, it was when we were doing the amendment, we had a lot of people very interested in this that were, were you know, nonprofits and probably think of, but we also had people who were not nonprofits who were also thinking of this too. So that's why you see the language was openly tailored because we didn't know who would be interested or what the, the future may hold. So that's why you kind of see those little, yeah. you know, it's not so narrowly defined because. I think anybody could do it as long as they could meet the code requirements. That's why the SUP is so important. I know where you are. You've talked. Do you want to, anything you want to? I, I would be in favor of six. 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 And we're kind of doing an informal kind of thing. Just try, trying to get us to a sense of where emotion might come from. We forget. <laughs> but if we, if we go with six, we're, we're out of. It doesn't come back to us. It's a building permit, and the planning commission is not needed for building permits, right? So right. we we never see it. Um, building permits would go directly to building safety for review and approval at that point in time. Do we want to see a thousand of them? No. I was just curious as to the timing, right? So we're talking about the land development code is is going to address this. So that's correct. I mean, correct. And, and that will be coming down the pipe house soon. I'm just trying to think like I'm in favor of opening it up as much as possible. I just want it to go, go through a channel of people who are really looking at it more than just us tonight. But if that's going to take 20 years, that might change my opinion. Is my understanding that like that's coming right down the pipe. It's going to take two. We're hopefully we have the code our approval considerations about this time next year. About the whole problem. I'm hoping this table is really made of wood. Uh, Not trying to jinx, yeah. Yeah, no, no. And, <laughs> I, you know, one of the things I think Mary kind of touched on this one is, is because I, we think this is a good one to, to put forward because if, if we're seeing good progress in it now, then something we'd want to give and roll over into that code and make sure it has continuity going into it. So, and if we see something that is not working quite well, that gives us a chance to fix it and get it tailored right. So when we do the update, we, we get that ironed out and, and make sure it's behaving as everybody would like to behave. Is, is the difference in price from a 6,000 to a 7,000 square foot lot just a 16% or is it 25% more, 30% more. Are, are there any figures on that? Kind of depends on where it is. Bunch of bunch of things probably go into that. Pedro probably know better than most. Right. Well, yeah, the, 
like most real estate agents would say, location, location, location. Yeah. <laughs> but it should be significantly more for a 7,000 and a 6,000. Is that a fair statement? Okay. It just depends. Okay. It might be, it, it can be a quarter of a million more on one side of the town than, than the other side of the town. So, okay. So, I mean. So, I'm also for six. Sorry. Six. I'm also for six. six. So, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I'll so, take a, I'll so, take a shot at it. Please. Take a shot at it. I move that we approve a text amendment, TA-23-00227, to Chapter 20 of the City of Lawrence Code modifying standards pertaining to the construction of two permanently affordable attached dwellings on one lot, including minor revisions as noted in the staff report, with the exception of lowering the square footage required only have a building permit from 7,000 to 6,000 square feet and forwarding to the Lawrence City Commission with a recommendation for approval. You get it? A second? Second. Sure. Discussion. I'll say that I still intend to, I guess, vote against this lowering it down to 6,000. I expect, based on the discussion, it's still going to pass, which I like, but I just want to have it stated that I, I think 7,000 is a good number. Uh, it doesn't change the inventory of lots that would have this available to them as an option. It just changes the process, and it involves some more notice and oversight and uh, potential tailoring of conditions. So that's where I'm at. Thank you, Mr. Munch. Any other discussion? I agree with him. <laughs> and I'd just like to say on the record, I am 100% for this, but I, I too am going to I'm stick yeah. with the 7,000, but only for the reasons I've previously said. Sure. Uh, I would like to counter that just as a, as a comment. Um, reason why I would like to set at 6,000, just because it will, like entities like, like the ones you represent, it saves them time to utilize probably a, a grant or a money that they have for a certain period of time to go ahead and start the building permits or to go ahead and start the process of building those homes. Sure. Um, because sometimes, you know, uh, like we see 1200 lots, if they all apply at once and she has the grants or the entity has the grant for six months and then unfortunately this meeting won't take place until seven or eight months, then she, there's a possibility that you would just lose that and won't be able to build those homes. And those, that's the reason why I would like to, you know, uh, say that it's 6,000 is a good number. Thank you. So, Anybody else? Any more discussion? I have a question. Did that motion include the use of the special use permit? I didn't hear it. Yep. All it did was change the minimum requirement for building permit from 7,000 to 6,000. So anything under 6,000 still stays. That's special use. Any other discussion? Those in favor, aye. 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 Those opposed, it passes 6 3. And uh, that takes us to miscellaneous old or new business, new or old business. Is there anything from anyone before Thank we you. have? Thank you for being here. Anything from anyone? <laughs> 
I would just like to say thank you. I learned a lot tonight. I really appreciate the discussion. I feel like I know a lot more about affordable housing and uh, and I just really enjoyed tonight's conversation. So thank you all. Um, thank you for the CIP stuff. That was just, yeah, very good work. Thank you. Things from staff, if I may. First, thank you all for being extremely flexible with the um, <laughs> voluntary meeting. I really appreciate that one. The other one is, I believe we have settled on a date for our orientation. We've got to getting that scheduled out here pretty soon. So follow up with more information as that's going to come to. I think we've got a, a good date candidate. Okay. Very good. A secret, the date? Because I can't remember what it is right now. <laughs> I would entertain a motion to adjourn. I move. So moved. Second. Second. Those in oh, discussion. Those in favor, aye. 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 We're out. Thank you. <laughs>